You are ready for Warriors Huddle with me, Bram, with me per usual, my producer Marcus. What's up, Dub Nation? And our master of all things sound, Maxime. How's it going? Boys, I'm excited to announce rejoining us after basically not a hiatus at all. The Barry News Group's Warriors specialist, the host of the Locked On Warriors NBA podcast, and a man who seemingly just hates Michael Jordan, Mr. Wes Goldberg. What's going on, Wes? I'm not even sure Michael Jordan's the best shooting guard in NBA history at this point <laughs> after thinking about it for a few days. You know, that away, that away. I mean, at this point, you just got to accept your villain status and just stagnate into it, man. So I, yeah. uh, I made the LeBron James 2010 heel turn for sure. Do you think it's Dwayne Wade? Is that why oh, you're going? Duh. Yeah. That, that one without saying, come on. Now. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't think of that. And if there's some way, Maxime, can we restart this? And Marcus, when I use that line, would you mind not calling me out on it at all? Is that, is that something we can work out? <laughs> I mean, we got the Heatles super fan over here. So any, it's gotta be D Wade. In his peak in 2008, I would put up against anybody. So. I love that I give you credit for the joke, MT, and then you explain it to me. I understood why you said <laughs> D-Wade, did I didn't need like a breakdown of the humor. All right, I'm not using the line anymore. Let's just move on, boys. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to be going back through our last dance stuff now that we have a couple of new episodes in pocket. We have a bracket that I couldn't be more fired up about. But before we get to either of those, let's focus on the Warriors in a brand new segment. I'm going to call this one Top Takes of the Week. And here's the idea. So sports aren't really happening anymore. You guys may have noticed. But the fact that they aren't playing has not stopped athletes from speaking. We're still getting takes left and right. In fact, they seem to be coming fast and furious, specifically from the NBA. The new move, from what I can tell, is getting superstars along with their friends taping the Zoom conversation or whatever it is, and then uh, all those takes get released. And in this segment, what we're going to try to do is take advantage of all this free content that's floating around. Uh, When we do it, one of us is going to be in charge of keeping a heads up on what's being said, and then we will bring the top quotes from the week back to you guys to discuss. I was in charge this week, and they came pretty easy, all from one person. Mr. Draymond Green, who was on the All the Smoke podcast with Stack Jack and Matt Barnes and was just perfect for it. Did you guys catch that at all? Have either of you listened to it? Yeah, it's a good podcast. I like it in general, but Draymond's was particularly enlightening just because he was so candid. I mean, their whole approach, and you'd imagine it, right? I mean, it's Stack Jack and Matt Barnes. So you know that they're down to talk shit. You know that they're down to be as, as honest and as open as they can be. But when they bring guests in, it doesn't always immediately work. You know, Steph Curry was on there. You know how I feel about Steph. And, and the episode was really entertaining. But Steph's vibe doesn't really fit with Stack Jack. You know, they, they can't necessarily talk about the time that Stack Jack pulled out a gun after he got hit by a car in front of a strip club. I feel like Draymond would be interested in that story and their vibes really got together during this pod. So if you haven't checked it out, I couldn't suggest it more, but I also would invite you to keep listening because what I've done is I've pulled out some of the top takes from it. And uh, let me give you the first. I'm going to be who I am and try to help these young guys. If we win, great. If we don't, who cares like all right we don't win for a year it is what it is so my whole focus was just trying to be a mentor and teach these young guys you know because for me like i'm in year eight and but we won a lot and so it seemed like i've been in the league forever but i'm not you know i've I've had like 
Matt, I've had uh, Jermaine O'Neal, Jared Jack, David West, Zaza Pachulia, Sean, Andre. I've always kind of been, you know, I, yes, I've been a leader on the team, but I've always kind of been the leader of like, you the, like the little brother that, yeah, you got leadership, mm-hmm. uh, you know, capabilities and, and you are a great leader, but you're the little brother that still got an attitude problem. Like, and so I get mad at times and like can go off. And then like one of them guys are like, all right, shut up. You good now? Like, get back in place. Yeah. I always had that yeah. guy. And now all mm-hmm. of a sudden, I was kind of that guy. And it was weird as f- with me starting this season. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> weird as hell. I went from, like, Thanks. the young guy to, like, the the better, like, the super uh, better on the team. OG. Yeah, yeah, you OG now. Yeah, it was weird you as shit. Wes. Oh, my God. Yeah, the reason I pulled this one, and so I, I should have framed it a little bit better. What they ask him about is what's or what was your goal during uh-huh. last year? And he first says, hey, my goal was to help the younger players. And then he has what I thought to be a really intelligent, emotionally mature look at his own role on the team by acknowledging that, look, I was a hothead, but I also wasn't the, the lead hothead. You know, I'd, I'd go crazy and then one of my mentors would step in bring me back to focus. And this year I had to take over the mentorship. And I thought of you and here's why you got to watch these guys. Um, you, you got to see Draymond throughout the year. And so two questions just right off the bat. One, did you get the sense that his goal was making sure that the young guys grew up, right? And, and like slowly knew the system. And then two, if you did see that, did you see him getting better at it? Because that quote suggests it was weird for him at first, and then he kind of got his feet underneath. So before I answer your question, because it's a good question, um, this is the stuff Draymond Green has said all season to us. And the Draymond Green thing is kind of maddening from a media perspective. And look, I got a great job. I love my job. I love being able to talk to Draymond Green and transcribe his like seven-minute tirades. It's like the best part ever uh, of, my, of my job. But... It just, it, he says stuff, just normal stuff, but then as soon as he uses the word f- it becomes a headline, and he drops like eight <laughs> F-bombs in there, and be, and all of a sudden your, your head turns. R- take the curse words out of that, and it's just like, yeah, he was a mentor to young guys because he's one of the oldest guys on the team, no sh- and it's just But like he has all these F-bombs going through, and he's like so amped up about it that now all of a sudden I have to write about it You know, during the season. you know, We have to talk about it on a podcast. If he didn't drop the F-bombs, you wouldn't have pulled that clip. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah However, that's probably fair. That's the Draymond Green special. It's the Draymond Green special. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because uh, it was earlier. I can't remember what game it was. It was It was like the first, was, I think it was within the first five games of the season. Right? They were in Oklahoma City and they lost by like 30 points or something. And he comes out in front of the media and says, we fucking suck. And it immediately becomes a headline. And I have to write a whole other story in addition to my game story on deadline, et cetera. My job's great. I don't care, whatever. So it's, it, but that, it immediately becomes a headline. And, and it's only because he said the F word, right? In it. If he just said, we, we suck tonight, it'd be like, yeah, you know, we hear that all the time in the NBA. But because there's an F bomb, it becomes a headline. And is Draymond Green, Draymond Green, fiery Draymond Green, et cetera. I run with that narrative, whatever. Um, but it was that was a clear turning point to me for Draymond Green because that was he did it one other time and it was uh, I can't remember the game after but it was it wasn't it wasn't that much longer after that game and the coaching staff pulled him aside and you know behind closed doors not in the in the scrum and and uh, basically explained to him yeah you know what we do 
fucking suck. But we're gonna fucking suck all season. So get used to it. And that is the that was a shift. It was probably within a month of the season. There was a shift in Draymond Green, and there was no more of these tirades. And there was a lot more of huh. uh, even keeled Draymond Green. The one that you just heard. Everything that he just explained in that soundbite was his. That was his goal, and he said that to, my, uh, to us all throughout the year. He he referenced Jermaine O'Neal and what Jermaine O'Neal did to him, for him yep. when he was young a hundred times throughout the rest of the, the regular season. And so that that was a pretty clear shift for Draymond Green. And I think for him, from a personal standpoint, he grew as a leader this year in a very major, major way. And he developed patience that he had never otherwise exhibited. Um, and it was impressive. It really was. Uh, I was actually planning to write a story about it until, you know, everything. So um, it was uh, all that stuff was pretty noticeable and kind of developing right in front of us. And to me, it was one of the most interesting storylines of the season. That I think that analysis is is right, definitely, and you know it's it's helpful because you have that inside pers- perspective. But I just I feel like cuss words in general um, just make quotes better. You know, right. it doesn't matter who you are. Like if you take the Last Dance, like when they give that iPad to Michael Jordan and say, "Here's what Isaiah Thomas said about not shaking your hand," and before he gets it, if he says, "You can show me whatever you want," you're not going to convince me he's not a he didn't mean it. Versus you can show me whatever you want. You're not going to convince me he's not an asshole. Like, I don't think it blows up quite as much. I think him, you know, calling him an asshole kind of gave it a little more umph. So, but I, right. you know, I get your point. And I, I seen the it, but I think the media just, for that though, because we run with that. Yeah, it's so it's true. such an easy headline. Um, yeah. It's, it's problematic. But at the same time with Draymond, he has this fiery narrative, right? Now, you know, if Steph Curry were to come out and say we bleeping suck, that would be, that would lead SportsCenter for a week, right? <laughs> I, you guys are both right as far as the swearing is concerned. For Wes, the the, mm-hmm. the second that they drop an F-bomb within a quote, it makes it clickbait instantaneously. Right. I certainly try to use that clickbait, and I used it here. There is I, I did like all the beeps, even though I know it's going to be a pain in the ass for Maxine. But I'll also back Marcus, and I'll use the last dance as well. I taped the first two episodes, and for whatever the hell reason, my cable box screwed me on the first one. I you caught, taped the first two episodes? I taped, I taped the first two episodes. In 2020? Like, I mean, my God, whatever the hell the go-to word is, I feel like now we're focusing on the wrong thing. Also, this segment's going to take 19 years if you're calling me out on how I'm ultimately taping something. But this my point is, I don't know what you're saying. the first episode that I watched was not the mature content one. I ended up, I got the ESPN2 version, and so I didn't get to see Jordan uh, dropping cuss bombs. And then I watched number two live, and they were dropping F-bombs, and it was so much better and so much real and so much uh, easier to associate with the people on screen. I went back, and I watched the first one. In fact, I, I got a Betamax, taped it, and watched it on that, so it was fantastic. But I, I, I can see I, exactly. I, I have no. I, I don't understand that reference whatsoever. If you're looking at video cassette recorders and you're confused by all your choices, just look at the most important feature of all: the picture. And Sony Betamax records a sharper picture than VHS. That does not. That does does not shock me, and it actually makes me slightly happy. But either way, I think both of you are right. And pivoting this back to Draymond, a couple of things. One, the idea that he was able to make that switch impresses the hell out of me. People who are watching Draymond from afar and watching him go into those technical F-bomb tirades probably have some perception of a guy who is mentally completely out of control and allows his emotions to be controlled by his anger. 
But what we just heard is that is absolutely not true. This guy went from a situation where he was winning left, right, and center everywhere, high school, college, and then here, his first year, they went to the the playoffs. He has never had a down year. And then he gets to his first lack of success uh, during a professional season. He has to do it alone. Splash Brothers are gone. Katie bounced. Sean's not playing anymore. Andre's been traded. He's the lone stand-in here. They are awful. He's surrounded by people who need to learn the game. If he was the emotional hothead that everybody thought, he would have tuned out immediately, man. You know, instead, what we just heard and verified by Wes is that he made a pivot um, and he decided to continue to help the team and funnel his anger as opposed to allow it to overpower him. That's awesome. I'm not capable of yeah. that. You know? no, I'm, and I'm was, not capable of that at all. And he was, and, you know, to keep credit where it's due, he was nudged in that direction by the coaching staff, but also credit to Draymond. He listened. And that's not always the case with Draymond, especially with a Steve Kerr relationship that's been up and down. And I thought it was interesting in The Last Dance, and I, I wrote this down. Yeah, The Last Dance, Steve Kerr was doing his interview, and he was talking about uh, Dennis Rodman, and he said, to get the most out of him, um, you have to give him some rope. I mean, that is the Draymond Green management yep. playbook right there. And yep. so you give Draymond a little bit of rope. You rein him back in when he's on his tirades. But then again, he was – I think he led the league in technicals this year. He was up there. Like, you got to give him the tech every once in a while. He needs to just, like, lash out on the ref and take it out on him and just, like, stampede off the court into the locker room. You need to give him that every couple of times. But he wasn't going to get suspended. He wasn't going to get the big fine. He never planned on it. Um, he just needed to, to, you know, let it out every once in a while. And that's we've seen Draymond do that throughout his career. I don't think that that's going to go away. To me, like the on-court stuff, you, it'll still be the same on-court Draymond. He's still going to scream at, the, at his teammates when they're not, you know, closing – closing out on defense or making timely switches or whatever it is, boxing out. But uh, it's it's in the locker room. It's during practice. I mean, several times during practices this year, Draymond Green was coaching the team. They would, they would pause, and Draymond Green would walk guys through defensive sets and things like that, especially, you know, with Ron Adams taking a little bit of a lesser role this year. So there was a lot of that with Draymond. So I think it was more of that stuff, the practice, the locker room stuff, that, where he really grew. But on the court, it's going to be the same Draymond going forward. I love that you mentioned technical fouls only because it gives us a perfect transition. One of the quotes I pulled, Draymond actually explains some of the rationale behind why he was losing his mind on the court this year to the refs and was actually seeking technical fouls. Maxine, let's hear that one. I remember like sorry ass teams always saying to us like, yo, y'all get like calls like a motherfucker. And I'm like, yo, we really don't get no calls. But now being on the sorry ass team this year, I saw exactly what they was talking about. Like it was almost at times like referees was kind of like, like, like the opportunity to get back. You know what I'm saying? And right. So, I'm trying yeah. to tell you. And, and like then they'll start talking to you like you're a little ass boy. And so uh, some of the, a lot of those texts I got was just like, yo, like. I'm still Draymond Green. Fuck out of here. Like, yeah, I'm you still ain't talking to me. Yeah, you ain't talking you, to me like yeah, that. Yeah, you ain't going to treat me like I'm some young <laughs> out here. So that was kind of, uh, that was that was where a lot of those texts came from. Was just, I felt like it was a lot of blatant disrespect. Okay, so hearing that, Wes, d- does that provide any clarity? Or do you believe him that, you know, when he's explaining that there's actually some mental rationale behind it? that he went through a, a thought process of, no, I cannot let this stand because they need to recognize who I am. Do you believe him or do you think maybe he was getting those technicals because he's Draymond Green and the fire will never totally leave him on the floor? 
Uh, both. I, I definitely think there's probably some like revisionist rationalization Draymond's doing right there, right? Uh, like I don't think that they. I, I'll say this: his interaction with the referees, I do think, is a lot of "Hey, I'm Draymond Green. Don't forget that I should get the calls." But then again, like Draymond Green doesn't really get a whole lot of calls. Like he's not a he's not the guy that's like going on the free throw line ten times a game. So I don't really. <laughs> but he did get called for like I remember it did seem he was getting called more for defensive fouls this year than he had been. And so that was really when he had the the biggest problem. Right. And so look, I think some of it is just Draymond being Draymond. He is going to flame up in the middle of a game and he's going to direct that fire at the referee. Uh, I think there's a little bit of revisionism happening in his comments on this podcast, but it doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means it's a little bit less calculated than what he's saying. Yeah, of course. I mean, I would do that. If if someone yeah. asked me about it and I had an opportunity to inject a, you know, mostly truth, but maybe a little something that made me look better, I would do that in a heartbeat. Uh, Marcus Maxime, let's take him for his word. Let's say he's, he's doing it because he wants to make sure they remember who he is. Good idea. You know, do we like him saying, hey, ref, you remember who the hell I am? I feel like it's a it's a Hulk Bruce Banner situation. I don't think he gets to be Hulk. You know, he's just going to be Bruce Banner on the court the whole time unless he gets those moments to kind of flare up to Wes's earlier point. And so you think it is a good good or bad as he does it, it's a necessary evil kind of thing. It's kind of like it's actually part of his game. MT, you agree? No, I think you hold off on it until you're good again. I mean, I think, you know, you get those calls when you're winning and, you know, like you're a team that's in championship contention and more eyes are on you and the games matter a little differently. Um, so I think what, when they were having their down year and they were off, I, I think you just, you know, like you don't say anything. You just save that for when the games do matter more and you want that call and then you remind them. I'm a three-time champion, yeah. you know, defensive player of the year, award winner, blah, 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 blah. To add like- one thing, if I can add one thing to this, uh, I don't like to play the guessing the intentions of the person game. Oh, we do. But that's, that's basically I- what this show is about. Oh, okay. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Um, that said, uh, that I do think that it was good for Draymond to do what he did. Um, what, it was annoying. But for the coaching staff and I think for some of the players, but it also he is Draymond Green. And a lot of these players had never played with Draymond Green. And in many respects, he was a standard bearer for what the expectations were. Steve Kerr dialed back expectations after the first game, after training camp, he told me. He's like, we were not, he was like, I would have been surprised to make the playoffs after training camp. And Draymond Green never did not come off of that at any point as far as, I think he lowered his expectations, but he maintained the same standard. And um, that, that to me, I think was important for these young guys to see who are going to be carried over to next season to say, all right, like we never met that standard whatsoever, but at least we have an idea of what it is. And they can kind of approach the offseason and next season with that. And it's not when they go into next season with Steph and Clay are healthy, it's not going to be shocking for them. Sure. And so I think it'll be important. That makes sense to me. Um, it's also a great transition. I, I have a brand new segment that I forgot to announce up front. It's called Guess Wes's Intentions. Um, and all we're going to do is just look into why you're saying that. Uh, what you said, um, I think, is on the money. Uh, and it also revived a take I had about the first quote that I want to spit out, and then we'll move to our next one. But hearing Draymond talk about the goals for the season and, and us talking about how 
his maturation and how he was helping the young players also really underlines in a weird way that this last year, one of the most painful years in recent memory, a 15-win year, might have been the best possible case scenario for the Golden State Warriors from a basketball perspective. Now, obviously, nobody wants COVID-19. The pandemic is awful. You know, This is not me somehow trying to justify us going through a global pandemic. But if you look at it just from a sports angle, here's what they got. So they lose against Toronto, and there's all these open questions about the roster and about the health. Number one, they needed to shore up their health. They did. Steph got to take most of the year off. Clay got to take all of the year off. And Draymond, although he was involved, obviously, you know, he, he got his, uh, his load management. So they, they were able to do that. They needed a talent infusion. We'll see how that works. But they had so few wins, we know they're going to have a top five pick. There's no question that's coming. They also needed for that to go as quickly as possible, right? If we're, if we're going to have to go through a year where they're bringing back a draft choice, why not have one where they don't even finish the regular season? You know, if, if it means suffering, we got to suffer the least amount possible. And then finally, and this dovetails into the Draymond thing, they needed to teach these young guys. And if they had to hand select the one person left on, you know, from the championship rosters who could mentor these guys if he could take his anger and, and weaponize it would be Draymond. Everyone has called him a coach on the floor from his rookie season. He has a basketball savant nature to him. And so the fact that he was the guy who was there who kind of helped uh, make sure that they all understood the culture and they all understood the offense and the defensive side of the ball was a best case scenario. So you know, hopefully we'll see the fruits of all of this stuff next year, but I felt like it was worth throwing into the mic. Yeah. And I, I'll take your guys. Well said. Yeah, Howard Silence says, obviously agreeing with me. Maxime, give me the, uh, the take about Draymond and Steph. I think I changed the game of basketball with the help of Steph Curry. You know what I'm saying? But I think Steph Curry changed the game of basketball with the help of me. Like, I think it was no a match made in heaven. MT, do you agree with that? So, I mean, we, I, of course, uh, Steph made Draymond better. Steph makes the ball boy better. But when you look at their relationship, do you think that Draymond made Steph better? Yeah, I think it was definitely symbiotic, but I don't, I don't think it was just those two. I think um, Clay's presence made a big difference. I think Steve Kerr's system made a big difference. I think there were a lot of factors that went into it, but um, just in isolation, um, absolutely. I think they both benefited from being on the same team together. As you, as you see, like when they, you can box in one step and then all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's a, a different game for him and it's harder for him to get the ball off and, you know, get his shots up. That's because of clay isn't there. Um, so I, I think they both made each other better. I think it favors more Steph making him better, but you know, Draymond, you know, like him or love him or hate him, whichever you feel, he is one of the ultimate utility men in the, in the league. And he is, when he's dialed in and locked in, he makes teams a lot better, including the players on the court. And I think that's true for Steph Curry as well. He later says that he's one of the best, if not the best, screen setter uh, in the NBA and perhaps in NBA history. So the idea that a defensive-minded, screen-setted, tough, power forward could help one of the greatest shooting point cards on all time is not mind-bending. I agree with you. 
but it led really to this question. And Wes, I'm going to throw it towards you. First, a little bit of background. I didn't pull the quote. It is what it is. My apologies. But Draymond was on another show before this one. Um, he was on, I'm not sure if it was a podcast. I'm not sure if it was um, some kind of internet show, but he was on there with Maverick Carter from Clutch Sports. And the quote went pretty viral, and Maverick was giving Steph crap about his defense. He acknowledged that he, in fact, led the league in steals at one point, but he also said, Maverick did, that uh, Maverick Carter's 38 years old. He said that it's been 20 years since the last time he played any meaningful basketball, and he's pretty sure that he could put up a 20 spot on Steph or something to that effect. And Draymond was on the podcast with him and said nothing in response. So let me go to you, Wes. I've got three questions for you, all right? So question number one, if you were on that podcast and Maverick Carter took that shot at Steph's uh, defense, would you have said anything? If I were on the podcast and I were Draymond Green? No, you, your oh. personality. Yeah, would, would you have defended him? And let's, let's, you know, just to make it a weird hypothetical, let's say you and, and Steph are friends. Oh, we're already friends. What's the oh. hypothetical? Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, then, yeah, channel channel that religious friendship. Would you have said something? Um. Yeah, because he's not going to score twenty on Steph. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I wouldn't sit there and defend Steph necessarily, but I would be giving Maverick Carter some shit because okay. I was like, no way, dude. You haven't played. Like you're not an NBA player. Steph's not that. Like he was. He used to be terrible on defense. To me, the Maverick, I, I call people out on lazy takes, and that's a lazy take. That's like, bro, you haven't really watched Steph Curry play defense in, you know, five or six years I love now. This. Okay, that, that's, ex- that's exactly right. Channel this anger and channel it into this <laughs> next one. Channel into this next one, all right? Now I'm changing the hypothetical. This time, Steph is on the podcast, and Maverick Carter takes a shot at Draymond. Let's say he takes a shot at his shooting. Uh, I'm a 38-year-old. I don't play in the NBA, but I could beat Draymond in a three-point contest. Would Steph say something? Steph would laugh. Um, and that's it? You know, like not yeah. even like a passive aggressive, like you can't shoot for crap. I mean, it's something. He wouldn't, he wouldn't give him some, some crap yeah. about it? He would give him maybe a little bit, but it would not, it would not rise to the level of defense that um, maybe the former defensive player of the year warrants. Yeah, I gotcha. All right. And then these, I'm crescendoing, as you can see, it leads me to this final question. Draymond didn't say anything. Um, and, and he laughed and, and the whole thing was kind of, you know, tongue in cheek. And we know how he feels about Steph. It's not like there's some drama in the locker room. But one of the things that caught attention when this quote was thrown out there was that Draymond didn't defend Steph. So let me ask you, in your opinion, that's all it is. Should he have? I know you want like good radio here, but I don't give a shit. Like, I, I feel I, like you should have. I'll say it. I feel like you should have. Um, yeah, no, I, he probably, he, he probably... He probably should have said something because it at least would have been, it would have, it, it was kind of out of character for him not to. So in in the in the ethos that is Draymond Green, he probably should have said something. And it was, and like I said, he there was a runway to give Maverick Carter shit, which is always great. Like if you could take down a powerful player a little bit and just rib him a little bit, you got to take that that chance. And he just laid it out right in front of him. I, I, Maxime, am I wrong to be pissed off by this? And so look, man, it's my personality type. I take really stupid, small things, and then I'm all on board. You know, and I, again, I know their relationship. I mean, I, it's, there's nothing there. But when I heard it, I was waiting for Draymond to be like, bullshit, something. You know, and, and the fact that it went silent got anger out of me. Am I overreacting? No, I don't, I don't totally think you're overreacting because, you know, we're getting to watch The Last Dance a lot and think about the 90s Bulls era and there's a lot of questions about whether or not Pippen could be a number one on a team. Um, and I, 
it, it kind of doesn't it 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 seems very he's definitely not better than Michael Jordan. We'll say that. And in the same way, uh, I think Draymond benefits from Steph more than Steph benefits from Draymond. And I think Draymond needs to show some some deference and recognition that Steph is the one that really brought those titles home. I don't think it. I just to me, it's so absurd that I don't think Draymond even gave it that much credence and that's yeah. why I don't think he said anything I think it's just silly like at the end of the day if Maverick Carter stepped on a court and Steph is dressed up and ready to play an NBA game Maverick Carter would not score a basket even with Steph guarding him Steph is not. a professional NBA player regardless of, is he a lockdown defender at the point guard position against other NBA caliber players no but he plays a passing lane as well he does what he needs to do he fights he's competitive as hell so, you know, like at the end of the day, I think Draymond just took it as like a a, a silly statement. Like, you're not going to say anything to that. It's the same thing as LeVar Ball saying, I can be Jordan. It's like, whatever. I feel like your version of I really don't give a f- about this question was a little bit nicer to me than Wes's version of I really don't give a f- about this question. So, I mean, nicely played, man. That's uh, I appreciate <laughs> both of you. Uh, That's why I'm here. That's yeah, no, here. thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, all right. Last quote I wanted your guys' take on. We won't actually have to play uh, because the concept's pretty easy to relay. They asked Draymond, um, were you ready to play a game without fans? You know, because they were all uh, preparing for it and had already talked about it and Myers had prepared the team. And he said, not only was I ready for it, but I had reached out to a DJ in my life who put together two mixtapes that I was going to suggest they play as we played the game. And he said, you know, it'd be like an open gym. We might as well have some hip hop and some, some top 50 sounds behind us. Good idea or bad idea? Live music during if they brought back the NBA with no fans. Great idea. Are you kidding me? Awesome. Yeah, you can kind of, look, I, local DJ, let's go. Let's spin some tunes. Uh, it would have been, been really weird to, to have no music or anything. Um, it would have added some energy. And look, I, I think the players feed off of the fans, but they also like to, they, they work out to music, they practice to music. It would have given them a little bit more pep in their step. And uh, it would have just made for a better on-court product uh, that would have been televised. So um, I had heard that uh, there were several players asking for that, um, if huh. they were going to go ahead with that Brooklyn Nets game, that they wanted live music. So that wasn't just Draymond. I'm curious what you guys think about because so much of the home court advantage is about having fans that understand some of your tendencies and you know when you need a little bit of a boost and like when to be quiet, for example. Um, so how do you do that when there are like two teams? Do you have like dueling DJs that get to? Yes, <laughs> that's an awesome idea. Hundred percent. That's what you do. You have to have a traveling DJ in the team plane, and he's like, you know, if it's Brooklyn, you play some East Coast rap versus the Warriors, you're playing some Bay Area stuff. And then you just, you get, they have to, it's like dueling pianos. Well, and it's, it's a whole nother skill set. That's what I love about that. You would have to recruit the right DJ. It's not, I mean, yes. w- what you would want is someone to be able to play like the most disruptive music they could within the parameters of the rules when the other side was down there. I like that a lot. You know, so Detroit would be must watch television because they would just get Eminem out here to go to his full eight mile. Just go, yeah, he's just live. <laughs> he's on the other side of the court screaming at them as loud as they can. Um, I was going to say, I didn't like the idea because it would minimize our ability to, uh, 
to hear them shazzing each other, right? Like the shit talking is the stuff that would really speak to me. But I, I throw that to the side. Now I like, there could be like a whole reality TV show of them trying out the DJs and figuring out like who the biggest asshole DJ was and how he was good at distracting. All right, I'm on board. Uh, phenomenal idea. And I think they should definitely institute it. All right, boys, let's transition into our, I want to say brand new segment. I don't know if we can use that phrase now that we've done it once before. So we'll call it a pseudo brand new segment. And that's when we go back through the last couple episodes of The Last Dance and just enjoy the hell out of it. And I've got a new slant to start off this Last Dance segment. I'm going to call this one Building of a Champion. And one of the kind of cool, unexpected upsides of this Jordan documentary is that it also features Steve Kerr. And for Warrior fans, for very obvious reasons, that's aimed at extra entertainment for us. And in this building of a champion, what I want to do is try to look through these episodes, through this documentary, and try to pull nuggets out where we think Steve Kerr may have learned from Phil or from Mike or from anybody back in the mid-90s how to help build the dynasty that he's built here. And here's my first question, and it's it's kind of belated. It has more to do with the last couple episodes than episodes five and six, but it's the perfect transition from the Draymond uh, segment we just did. And it's this question. How much do you guys think that Kerr learned from Phil and Phil and Rodman specifically on how to coach Draymond on this team? And I'll just turn it to you. West, do you think that he pulled a playbook from Phil and has been using it with uh, with Green? Uh, There's no question. Um, Steve Kerr constantly credits Phil Jackson for a lot of his management and his coaching. I remember there was a story done, I don't know, a year or two years ago um, when a writer followed uh, a scout around and then ended up seeing like Steve Kerr's playbook or something or like what they thought was Steve Kerr's playbook. And the (laughs) scout had said that that um, the playbook had like no remnants of Phil Jackson whatsoever. And I don't think that. And so when Steve Kerr says that he's gotten a lot of inspiration from Phil Jackson, it's not an X's and O's like Steve Kerr does not write, run the triangle. We know no. this. Uh, but I, I don't think that any coach has taught Steve Kerr more than Phil Jackson in regards to the way he manages his team, the way he goes about practices. Uh, and you hear, I believe it was Steve Kerr in the documentary say no, no, like what, what Phil, what stood out about Phil Jackson was how he got to know his players and how he set a tone using the things that he loved, like yoga and, and um, you know, native American culture and stuff like that. Like he just took his interests and you, and put, and used those to put his own imprint on the team. And Steve Kerr does that. And it's not in such a extravagant, maybe kind of weird pseudo weird way is Phil Jackson, right? Like I don't think Steve Kerr has like a peyote pipe in his office and chase center, but he definitely like you hear players all the time talk about, he just really gets to know me. He asks about my family. He does all this stuff and he gets that from Greg Popovich too. But I think it started with Phil Jackson because he was, he was a player for so long under Phil Jackson and won so much under Phil Jackson. I don't think there's any doubt. And so when you hear him talk about Draymond green and, and sort of the push and pull relationship that they have, I think he looks at the way Phil Jackson handled Dennis Rodman and, you know, Steve in the documentary said like Phil understood you had to give Dennis Rodman some rope to, so that you could really get the most out of him. And there's no doubt that Steve Kerr recognizes that in Draymond Green and gives him sort of the same kind of leeway. I couldn't agree with you more. 
Uh, I mean, in fact, we see a bunch of specific examples, at least from the Phil angle during the documentary, the most easy of which is the 48 hours that turned out to be God knows how long that Phil gave Rodman Vegas, right? I mean, what Phil seemed to specialize in, as opposed to giving hard line, these are the rules for every single player, follow them or be f- was getting to know, just as you said, getting to know who these guys were, what they needed specifically, and then making rules designed specifically for them. And I didn't include the quote, and now I feel like I should have, although we're pretty quote heavy, but during the uh, podcast we were just listening to, or at least the, the podcast that I took all those clips from, Draymond actually tells a story about Steve Kerr. And what he says is that Kerr took the time to get to know me and get to know me and get to know me and get to know me. And once he knew my personality, he knew how to weaponize my fire. And for all the reasons you just said, I think that's exactly who we got it from. Um, and this is and kind I, of, go ahead. No, I, just, I think one of the reasons too is similar again to Phil Jackson, Dennis Rodman with like the Native American heritage that they shared and they kind of bonded over that. Um, a lot of people think that Steve Kerr and Draymond Green are really different, but I think that Steve Kerr has the most in common with Draymond Green of any of the stars he's coached. Uh, we've seen Steve Kerr break clipboards over his own knee. Yep. We've seen him completely just lose his temper at refs and get kicked out of games. I mean, that to me is like the most entertaining version of Steve Kerr. And there's a lot of enter- – Steve Kerr is an entertaining head coach. Yep. That's the most entertaining version of him. You never see Steph Curry do that. You never see Clay Thompson do that. You never really see Kevin Durant do that, um, even though he probably got – he'd probably get the closest, but that's just more because he's kind of like a whiny baby. But I think with Draymond – and Steve, they have this just intense competitive fire that doesn't go away. I just was talking to Steve Kerr this afternoon about his podcast that he has, right? And he says he goes back and re-listens to the podcast and takes notes to see how he could be better at it. Like, that's not his job. He's literally just doing this for fun, or really he's doing it to raise money, but he's kind of doing it for fun too with his friend Pete Carroll. And he's like going back and just he's got like this thing that can't turn off where he has to constantly get better. And I just find that so in line with guys like Draymond Green that just like that competitive edge that I think they bond over that, too. I don't know what I'm more upset over, that there is, in fact, another Warriors podcast out there that we have to compete with or that we're supposed to be re-listening to the pod after we've recorded it and then making it better. I felt that, too. My God, man, I'm crazy lazy. I mean, I guess I already knew that, but to have it thrown in my face by Steve Kerr. And let me give you a strange distinction I just came up with. Tell me if I'm off. Um, So watching Phil Jackson on that documentary and then watching Steve Kerr as a fan, and we just said it, there's, a, there's an obvious similarity. They both spend a ton of time learning who their players are. Here's the distinction. Tell me if I'm off. It looks like after Phil Jackson learns who the players are, he then determines what part of his own personality he can use to communicate with them. You know, if, if he thinks that they would be really into his Native American art collection, he'll show that. If he thinks that this book that he's read in the past will really help them, he'll give him that book. But really, it's a view at how can he use his personality to communicate with them? When you look at Steve Kerr, after he learns about them, the distinction is he doesn't use his own personality. He uses theirs. You know, he's not in there talking to them about Native American art or something in his own life that they may find entertaining. He figures out what speaks to them and then talks to them about that. Does that make sense? And do you think I'm right? It absolutely, like, to me, what stands out to Steve Kerr is that he he has interests, but yeah, you're right. He doesn't like make them like we know he likes baseball, right? Um, he's a Dodgers fan, but like the Dodgers don't come up during practice. Like he doesn't have people like 
going into batting practice. Like, you know, Phil Jackson might have people like learning about, you know, some sort of Native American, you know, ritual or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I, I remember talking to Glenn Robinson specifically, no longer on the team, obviously, but he was telling me how the difference between him and a guy between Steve Kerr and a guy like Dwayne Casey was that like Dwayne Casey, you showed up and he was like, okay, you play small forward for us and here's your positions on the court. And this is what we're going to do. Here's our offensive playbook. Here's our defensive playbook. Get to work where like that didn't even come up the first day he met Steve Kerr. The whole first day he was taught, he was just like, how's your family? Where are you from? Um, you hmm. know, what do you like to do? Who are you kind of stuff? And then like all the other stuff, like, that comes up in practice that comes up like during games, like the coaching will come, but the first thing you want to do. And, and Glenn Robinson was like telling me it completely took him aback because he played at Michigan. He played uh, for, you know, just these coaches that like were kind of old school and, and where Steve Kerr isn't really that. And I, granted, I think Steve also has the added benefit that he doesn't, he has like enough uh, reputational equity as far as just being like one of the greatest three point shooters of all time. So, like, just right there, he already relates to Steph and Clay, sure. right? Like, there's no work to be done. There's no additional work to be done there. But where he does have to relate to players is guys like Draymond Green and Kevin Durant. He needs to find ways to relate to them. But he also was, like, not Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen or Dennis Rodman. So he relates to the role players like Len Robinson and all these other guys. So he's kind of hit this sweet spot sure. where his reputation, his resume, gives him enough street cred, basically, to relate to all sorts of players. In a way that very, very few players, I think, certainly players who have gone on to be coaches, but even just any player can really relate to guys who are, you know, record holders, championship winners, but, you know, weren't high draft picks and weren't the best player on their team at any point. It's a Venn diagram, right, that most people cannot actually do. Uh, I heard somebody talking about Dusty Baker, the baseball manager, and they said he's a black dude who the white guys like who speaks Spanish. And, and like, you know, the, the Venn diagram that creates made him perfect for the Giants locker room at that time. And you're, you're talking about a different Venn diagram that is just as valuable. I think that analogy, though, it, it, it's perfect. Like it's it's spot on. And, you know, the relationship that Steve Kerr has used to manage Draymond Green and likened it to Dennis Rodman, I think that extends as well. Like, I think, you know, not saying that they're the same players, but you know, you had Michael Jordan, a transcendent star. You had Scottie Pippen, the ultimate role player who was probably undervalued and underappreciated. And then you had this wild card, Dennis Rodman. And the Warriors have Steph Curry, a transcendent player. Clay Thompson, an underrated, undervalued second star player. And then this wild card in Draymond Green. So learning how to manage and how those three stars were managed on one team and then the role players that needed to function around them exactly the same as you know Steph Clay and Draymond and the role players that are needed around them and I think part of the reason why KD was a little tough was because they didn't have that like for like there I mean you figure it out but I think not having that you know at that point KD is like coach, right and KD is is way better than coach and a whole different type of personality to integrate so like the analogy breaks down there but I think those first three just give Steve Kerr just a great leg up on how to manage successfully those types of personalities and those players that represent what they represent in the game at that time. And it shows his true value. 
I mean, for someone to be able to not only speak to the Splash Brothers, the foundation of a dynasty, but also know it's remarkably important to make sure that everybody feels a part of this, including the role players, because a locker room that doesn't have an even keel is not going to be a locker room that's holding up a trophy, right? I mean, I, I'll take it a step further, and then I'll, I'll push us to a different direction. But if I had to pick a specific skill, if I'm putting together a coach to coach this Warriors dynasty, and they could either be amazing with a playbook or amazing with a player. You know, they could draw a play that, that guarantees to get an open shot, or they could keep a locker room that everybody, if not loves each other, at least can work with one another. I would pick the player's uh, ability, and I wouldn't think twice, because you can always bring in an assistant coach, kind of the way that Phil Jackson did with Tex Winters, to take care of the rest. Uh, but I tell you what, let me switch this a little bit. In fact, let's go into a new Last Dance segment. This is the one called Rabbit Holes, where we throw out possibly unanswerable questions and try to get to the bottom of them. And here's my first one. And, Maxime, I'm going to throw it at you. Do you think you could beat Mike Jordan in a game where you throw quarters against a wall for money? <laughs> uh, no. I don't think I could beat Michael Jordan in anything. <laughs> I mean, he did lose. He lost to that strange-looking blonde security guard. Dude. But you kind of uh, got the sense that that strange-looking blonde security dude had been practicing that quarter-throwing game oh, for like days. Not, well, and that, and he had been working on his jerry curl for even longer, which is a very <laughs> impressive thing. But it actually leads to this follow-up question, and I'll throw it to any of you guys, um, although I'll answer it first. If I was a security guard in the bowels of United Center and I've somehow started up a relationship with Jordan where he's willing to like, you know, bet with me because they'd obviously been doing that for a while and I beat him. I don't know if I'm talking shit. And that blonde security did like mimic the, you know, the, the Jordan shoulder shrug like three times. It was really important to him to get that joke across. I don't know if I have that confidence. I feel like I'd be getting fired. So for you guys, if you have not only beaten Jordan, but took money off of him in front of a camera. Would you have talked a little shit the way that dude did? I think you're, you're right on point with the getting fired thing. I would be concerned about getting fired. That dude is so competitive that if he saw me as a legitimate threat, I don't, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that he would have me axed entirely. Jordan even accused him of cheating. He's like, oh, his coins roll. It's like, how is that? That's not cheating, dude. Like, what are you talking about? His coins roll. Like, everybody's coins roll. It's just good I would form, absolutely talk. Yeah, I would absolutely go in. I mean, if I'm beating Michael Jordan in anything, you got to talk smack. You know, he's not. You're not going to get fired. I mean, he's got a fun relationship with him, but I mean, you could tell Michael Jordan was getting pissed off, which was funny. And the dude definitely looked like the dude from ESPN, uh, um, John Clayton. <laughs> yeah, look up Jeez. that that commercial that, where he has the mullet. The Slipknot commercial, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that uh, is that dude looked just like him, and I was like, "Oh man, that's funny." Dude, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think full, you have to, you have to talk it. There's, 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 there's zero chance that you get fired if you talk trash because the one thing we know about Michael Jordan is that he was he's always down for a rematch. The only problem for Michael Jordan is that he had a game to prepare for, and so there's no night. way that that security guard was getting fired at least until Michael Jordan beat him. <laughs> like, he would have to beat him at least again. And I just want to say, for the record, I know you didn't ask me, but I would own Michael Jordan in that game. I used no to way. play that game. The game is called Quarters, and 
I, there's different ways to play quarters. You can play it with a cup. You can play it. But we used to play it against the wall all the time. Oh, yeah. I, w- I would destroy Michael Jordan. I will beat you, Wes. I will beat your ass. It is not called quarters. I don't know what the quarters is the one where you bounce a quarter into a cup. That's right. Yeah. I don't I don't know what this one is in particularly called, but we can call it for now the game that Bram will beat the hell out of Wes in. And I, whenever they ultimately allow us to be within six feet of one another, I hereby challenge you to a game of not called quarters. Done. We'll record it for the podcast. <laughs> I cannot wait. I do think that uh, Jordan would have him fired. In fact, I think in that wad of bills that that strange blonde dude put into his pocket, the last piece of paper is actually a pink slip. And he's not <laughs> going to see that until he gets back into the locker room. I think Wes, the loser has to wear a fake Jerry curl like our main man did in the, in the video. <laughs> it won't have to be a fake one. I am dedicating myself between now and the end of the pandemic to growing and dying a haircut exactly like that. So I will be ready. Uh, Wes, has there ever been a larger blown business opportunity than Jordan wanting to go with Adidas and Adidas apparently being like, no, we can't really make you a shoe right now. Yeah. Wasn't that like the lamest excuse ever by Adidas? Like, (laughs) what are they talking about? Hire somebody. We don't have the shooters. Hire one. What are you doing? And the thing is they ended up hiring the guy who, um, made the Jordan 1 and I think the Jordan 2 later on. So they end up hiring the that guy later, and Michael Jordan almost left Nike then to go to Adidas. Michael Jordan wanted to be on Adidas so badly, it's insane to me that he never got there. And like I get like his parents were nudging him in, in the Nike direction, and Nike really stepped up. But yeah, I don't know that there's not only a bigger blown opportunity, but just one that was like supposed to have Like you had him. All you had to do was just not blow it, and they blew it. My question back, though, is would Adidas be as big as Nike now? How much do you credit for the Jordan? How much credit do you give to Nike and, and just to Michael Jordan's celebrity uh, for the creation of Jordan Brand, for how big Jordan Brand is? Like, could Michael Jordan and Jordan Brand have gotten as big if it was with Adidas? I I don't know. I don't. I don't know the. I don't know the extent, like the background of Adidas' story that well. But I will say, I don't know if you guys have read Shoe Dog, um, by Phil Knight, right? Who's the founder um, of Nike? Like that dude has a lot of similar kind of underdog uh, mentalities to like some of the early dog days of Michael Jordan. Um, I think that was like a really underrated match. And I think they both credit one another for pushing each other to new heights. And there's no doubt that Phil Knight feels like Michael Jordan, I mean, clearly took Nike to um, to bigger heights than it, than it would have gone to without him. But I think it kind of went both ways. I think there's a lot of company culture that comes from the stability and, and vision that Phil Knight had in the early days. We see it from David Falk. Um, and before I go down that, let me just quickly say Adidas saying we can't make this shit. Bob's coming to Apple with the idea for the iPhone and Apple being like, oh, sorry, we don't have the materials. Go somewhere else. It is it is bananas. But when you hear Fock talking about it, his his agent at the time, it sounds like he understood who Nike was. They were a fledgling company. And he came in and pitched them on the idea of let's grow together. Right. They, and the uh, the model they were using at that time was tennis players. We hear them saying. And I, I back this up because I don't think unless Adidas was willing to take that exact same, all right, you and me, Mike, you know, we're going to focus only on you. We're going to make you the star of all the commercials. You're not one of 10 people. You are one of one. I don't think they would have grown this way, you know, and Nike, because they desperately needed to grow out their company, just so happened to be in the perfect position to grow alongside them. So no, I I don't think Adidas would have, uh, would have exploded the same way. I agree with you. I think there's, um, 
I think we kind of just assume that because Michael went to Nike that 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 they that he kind of made Nike. And and look, they, he got them in the basketball game, no doubt. They were, like they said in the documentary, it was basically a track shoe, and Adidas was basically a soccer shoe. But um, I, I I think we're seeing it play out right now. I mean, who is the most popular player among kids since Jordan, but not Steph Curry, right? And you see him with Under Armour, and nobody wears Steph Curry shoes, and yeah. and and he's not that like as far as commercial appeal, he's not that he's he's not. I don't think he's got like the pizzazz and the charm on camera that Michael Jordan has certainly, but it, under armor doesn't, hasn't really done a good job with Steph Curry. And as if we believe reports, Steph's like almost left twice and he's managed to stick around. But um, I, I, I think we're seeing it play. I actually give an inordinate amount of credit to Nike for sort of the creation of Jordan brand. And I, I would give them more credit than I would give to Michael Jordan. As good as a basketball player, if he was, that really doesn't have anything to do with the brand. It's every, it's the machine around him. I agree. And I think the one thing that it's small, but it counts is his like Michael Jordan's nickname came from a Nike shoe Mm -hmm. attribute. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they had already they talked about in that episode that they were using the technology of having the air bubble and they decided to go with Air Jordan for his shoe line. Like he doesn't become Michael Air Jordan without you know, using that product and being tied to that company. So it's a small thing, but it's, it's a big thing. I mean, it's, you know, if he would have been on Converse with all the other athletes like Bird and Magic and everybody, I think a whole different ball game. How terrible was that ad, by the way, with uh, so the, 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 the quick shot <laughs> and the other side of that, has there ever been a more iconic song, at least in an advertising context, than Be Like Mike? <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I found myself singing that and just randomly whistling it, I, what, 20 years later. Um, and so, I mean, it, it, they also had some real serious talent on the advertising side. I mean, we, we got a, a shot at uh, Spike Lee, but all of the ads that they put together for Mike were exceptional, right? Yeah, they definitely were. I mean, I think this just goes into my my ranting of, I don't think it's edited very well, The Last Dance um, being it. And it's just because there's a scene in there where they're in Barcelona and Charles Barkley is drinking Gatorade and has arm around Michael and he's singing and he's like, like Chuck, Chuck. if I could be, oh, I mean like Mike. And then 20 minutes later, (laughs) they go through the story of where that song came from. And it's like, you couldn't, you didn't, think to put that story before Charles Barkley singing it. If you don't know that background, you have no idea what Charles Barkley's talking about. And then you explain it 20 minutes later. It's like, I just, I don't know. This editing is just not I've being g- linear is throwing me off. It's- I've given up on understanding where we are in the story at any point. I have no idea like how this thing is being told literally. I just kind of turn off my mind and allow it to wash over me, which is, uh, <laughs> which has been working pretty well for me. Here's a random one uh, for the field. Any of you guys want to answer it? Has there ever been an NBA superstar who looked less like an NBA superstar than Clyde Drexler? Because I'm going to say no. Wow, that's a thinker right there. Uh, <laughs> that's a really good one. Jokic. NBA only? Doncic. Doncic. Uh, 
Jokic. But he's tall. I can see like if you if you showed me a picture, he's got a, of Jokic, he's got a tiger tattoo. If I if I stood next to Jokic and you asked me and I didn't know, you asked me what does this dude do for a living? I would throw out. I'd possibly throw a basketball player because he's so goddamn tall. If you if I said, well, I mean, Clyde's fairly tall too, but just the receding hairline and the way he stands. I mean, look, he was a hell of a player. But I'm I, I might go like insurance adjuster or something if you asked me who he was. Yeah, and I knew nothing about the NBA. Yeah, post 1950s, I think you have a point. <laughs> Here, more serious one. Did Michael Jordan keep Isaiah Thomas off the dream team? Yes. Uh, give me other boys. Marcus, Maxine, you guys agree? I think he was part of the reason, but I don't think he was alone. I think like they said in that episode, I think there was multiple people who said that for team chemistry, they didn't want him on there. I don't think it was only Jordan, but I think Jordan was one of the people who said that. Yeah, agreed. I don't buy that he didn't say anything, but I definitely think it helped that Pippen was also not a fan. The Jordan's oh, excuse for it, when he was like, well, I never actually said the words Isaiah Thomas, like that that's his explanation, means 100% that he get that pull off the team. If he treated him like Voldemort, if he was like, this person whose name I will not mention should not be there, then yes, dude, of course he had him kept off. Yeah, and if he just said we should have Isaiah Thomas on the team, let bygones be bygones. Everybody would have been like, all right, great. So <laughs> he had the power, and therefore he kept him off the team. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, but I mean, he had he got into it with Magic, with Bird, with so many other on. people. Yeah, and he, they just, yeah. I, yeah. Jordan definitely had it. They, he, he just didn't say his name. He just said nobody from the Detroit Pistons. <laughs> or he said nobody whose name rhymes with Baziah Kamas, you know? <laughs> but everyone else is totally fine. Incidentally, the um, them including footage of the Olympic team practicing was like seeing footage of like the Yeti, you know, or like the Loch Ness monster. I mean, I've I've heard of those practices since '92. They were always kind of thrown out there as like the best possible basketball that was ever played, but you never actually got to see any film of it. And watching them do that, I, I just thought that was awesome, including watching Christian Leitner's face constantly express the, what the f*** am I doing here face, <laughs> was just was just so entertaining to me. Um, what was he doing there? I mean, there were some <laughs> notable exceptions, Isaiah Thomas being one, Reggie Miller, Dominique Wilkins, James Worthy. I mean, there were some, some really good players on there that could have rounded out the official dream team of all dream teams. That was the rule when they had to have one college guy on, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and maybe that's how Jordan really revved it in for Isaiah. When he caught him, <laughs> it was like, I don't want anybody named or uh, rhymed with by Isaiah Mamas. And I would like Christian Leitner to take his place. <laughs> oh, that's scandalous. But I yeah, guess they were like, if that's true, then you have to have somebody from Duke. And they were like, Fine. <laughs> can I can I ask how how important that dream team was as far as your basketball fandom goes for those who remember it? I when the dream team was a thing, I was one years old. Okay. Uh so when what 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 was really the importance of that team? Because I was I'm looking at that. They're talking about how the dream team was so responsible for the NBA being what the NBA is and bringing the NBA to around the world and stuff. I just think about like like millennials and stuff. Uh like we don't really care about any of that. It just like doesn't have the same impact, but it seemed like it was like the biggest ever deal. And Bram, you're talking to me about like that footage being like the Yeti and you did something you'd always wanted to see. I'm like, I 
I you know, I'm, care less about seeing, you know, Olympic or World Cup, you know. I'm trying really hard not to continue to hate you for you not knowing what the Betamax is. So this this follow up question is really <laughs> destroying me. Um, and I liked you, Wes. I really like you. So I'm going to I'm going to try to look at this in a lens um, that won't destroy our relationship. Okay. But at least I mean, I'll I'll, uh, I'll leave it to Marcus and Maxime to give you their take. But, yeah, it was exceptionally important for me. Um, leading up to this, the U.S. did not dominate. Olympic basketball, which was super weird because it was our goddamn sport. So on on two different levels, it got my attention. One, internationally, it, it reestablished that we are you know, uh, by far the most dominant nation. And it was fun watching us win. But more than that, it really was it was like the Avengers before the Avengers existed, but in a sporting context. You know, it was the first time they had taken the best players, not only from one year, but from my entire conception of basketball, because I was young enough in 92 where I, you know, I, I didn't really have a historical view of the game. I only really knew the superstars who were in the league at that time. And having them all on one place from both conferences was unbelievable. And you got to remember, and, and this goes towards the, uh, the lack of footage. There's no social media, man. There's no internet. There was no way to look these guys up. We would just hear stories, but you couldn't actually see anything. So it, it did. It, it really led to this sense of importance. Um, but MT, am I speaking out of turn here? How important were they to you? I think the Avengers analogy is a great one. Um, that's what it was like for me. I, I would add to it. I think it was, it was the sheer dominance of it that really like drove it home for people. Like we the USA wasn't going out there and just, you know, winning the gold medal and beating teams by eight, 10 points. I mean, their, their average point victory was like 30 something points. I mean, they were blasting teams and it wasn't even close. Like if you did that in other sports, it'd be like the equivalent of winning every soccer game, 10, nothing in a world cup or, you know, like every football game, 55 to nothing. So I think just the sheer dominance and seeing our best players do it for our country it was, a, it was a sense of patriotism that was a little bit different. It was coming off the heels of Rocky Four, you know, which was a great movie, you know. And it's just like all of those things, I think, made for the perfect storm for it to be this moment where the USA kind of stood out in front and said, we're the leaders in a bunch of things and definitely basketball. I thought the Avengers movies were too long, so I'm not sold. I'm just happy. I'm just happy you've seen them, Wes. I, I'm surprised you were like. Actually, millennials don't give a shit about the Avengers either. So come up with another example. <laughs> I will say, see, watching um, David Stern talk about how the Dream Team uh, elevated the NBA's stature and like brought it to what it is even today, I couldn't help but think about some of the guys. I mean, all of the guys, Steph included, that skipped out on on the World Cup with FIBA this past summer as like, oh, this is directly potentially impacting your future salary. Um, sure. It feels like actually there's a lot of watching how Michael Jordan behaves in practice on the court that might be a wake-up call to this generation of players um, to like kind of change how they approach the game and maybe have a more holistic understanding of what it takes to maintain uh, the stature of the sport. Sure. I hope so. I, I absolutely hope so. Um, and this is a little bit conversational whiplash, but it's going to bother me if I don't throw it out there. So I don't know, 15 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, 
we were talking about whether or not Draymond should have defended Steph's defense with Mav Carter. And I went out of my way and said, yeah, he should have. And something you said, Marcus, has really stuck with me. And I, I want to change my opinion. What you said, MC, was, look, is he probably took it as a joke. It's ridiculous. Why the hell would Draymond have to say anything? And I think you're right. You know, if, if we change it, if Maverick Carter had come out and been like, you know what? Steph Curry is an ostrich. I literally, I think that he is an ostrich dressed in human clothing then you wouldn't expect Draymond Green to come out and be like, no, he's not. I've seen him. I know for sure he's a human. It'd be so outlandish. Why the hell would he have to defend it? I think the same thing applies for that defense. It was such a ridiculous take that why would Draymond have to defend it in any way? And that's been eating at me. So uh, I wanted to throw it out. Let me give you another last dance question, and it's this. So we get uh, we get a, a long look at Sam Smith's book, The Jordan Rules, which by the way, I've read twice and I remember absolutely loving it. And the focus of it is that in the book, you know, the somebody, some member of the team has broken their silence and is revealing all these nasty things apparently that Jordan has done to his teammates. And the immediate implication comes from Jordan was that it came from Horace Grant. And then they talked to Horace Grant and Horace was like, no, I would never do that. So my question is this, do you guys think that it was Horace Grant who was the deep throat who gave up all that information. Um, yes. The what? way that he defended himself was how a guilty person defends himself in like a CSI TV show, right? <laughs> it yes. was like, I never said nothing to no Sam Smith. I don't know anybody named Sam Smith. I actually don't even like the name Sam. I don't even play for the Bulls. Who are you? Where am I? It was like, what? Yes, you totally said all the things. Also, we every like it's been reported, I think, or like there's rumor that like Phil Jackson was also involved. And granted that Phil Jackson allowed the cameras into the locker room in the first place, just basically as an fu to the rest, of, like the 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 you know upper management above him. It wouldn't shock me if he also was just like, you know what, everything's huh. burning around me. Uh, here you go, Sam Smith. So I think it was a combination of Phil Jackson. I think it was a combination of Horace Grant. That's really interesting, especially because Krause is kicking him out the door anyways. You know, right. why not leave the door wide open for Sam Smith? Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, B.J. Armstrong said exactly. it too, right? He he was like, it wasn't just Horace Grant. Exactly. That's the only be thing more he said. Who are, who are That's and he yeah. doesn't even give, he doesn't give the initial thing of, I think it was Horace. And then it wasn't just Horace. He just skips over that initial thing. He's just like, oh, there's no way it was only Horace. So. Right, it's assumed. <laughs> Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. This was this was um this was during the first three peat run, right? I think the book came out in '92, so this was like before all of the shit was going down with Kraus potentially um making this be Phil Jackson's last season. I'm pretty sure. I just told you I don't understand the chronology, Maxine. Don't you show off your stupid ability to watch where this is going by the years? This guy just sitting back, cherry picking our takes, you bastard. Ram, are you editing The Last Dance and you haven't told us? I, I am. I am. And don't you worry about the choices I'm making. I don't need your judgment. Stupid choices. Maxime, if you were having a great game, I'm talking great game, dude, like 30 points at halftime, great game, your last game in the garden, but you go into halftime and you find pools of blood in your shoes and socks because shoe technology has moved on so far that these shoes are destroying your feet for the second half. Would you wear the same shoes? <laughs> I'm really glad you asked that because I feel like that is just another example of how hard Adidas blew it. He's literally <laughs> wearing shoes that are making him bleed and he's like, nah, I'm not going to move. 
That's insane. <laughs> but also, yeah, I would for sure, I would like poke holes in the bottom so that like a little bit of blood pours out onto the court as I'm doing it in the second half just to like show to everybody that, that I'm that much of a badass. Jesus oh, the Kurt Schilling sock? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, nice. you know, let's have this be reason number eight billion why I am nothing like Michael Jordan. I would have quit at like five minutes in when my heel started to hurt. I was like, no, we got to change these. We got to change these right now. Like I'm going to the locker room. It just is what it is. It also shows you just how much better Michael Jordan was than everybody else. He literally put on shoes that he <laughs> was bleeding at his feet from and kept them on and still went and won the game and scored over 40 points. It's like, just because he's like, oh no, I just, it's my last game. So it makes sense. So I'll just, I'll, I'll play with bloody feet and still beat this team. Yeah, I was I, I was walking around my apartment like a week ago and like at the like and I was just, you know, wearing socks for some reason. And at the end of the night, I realized that my toe had been bleeding and I just like bled through my sock. And I was like bleeding like for hours and didn't notice. And I felt like a badass. So I couldn't even imagine like if I had done that, but also scored like 30 points and a half at Madison Square Garden. I don't think I would have taken them off. I'd have been like, yo, I'm like the coolest guy ever right now. I'm gonna keep this going. I'm gonna just like like the pain didn't bother me before. It's not going to bother me now. While opening up my laptop to join this Zoom meeting, I kind of banged my elbow and almost texted you guys to say, we can't do this podcast anymore. It's like, ah, <laughs> I'm going to need a couple extra days. It is what it is. You. You're, is. Playing, you're playing through it. This is your 30 point and a half in Madison Square Garden and podcast. Be, and I'm covered in pools of blood. My elbow is just, like, there is blood everywhere right now. And I'll have you know, I just fought right through it. Uh, gentlemen, my last question about The Last Dance, at least for this segment, and I want a real answer. In a documentary about Michael Jordan, am I wrong or was Barack Obama still the coolest motherfucker in the room? <laughs> um, Barack Obama had the most enlightening and insightful uh, interview comment during the documentary so far. And I'm kind of surprised Michael Jordan let it in. And I've actually been thinking about this a lot. Uh, Barack Obama basically came out and said that he wished as a, at, at that time, um, a young rising political figure in Chicago, that he had hoped that Michael Jordan would come out, um, with a political stance that he felt was needed at that time. And we hear all these things about like, and Michael Jordan said, I don't need to be a role model. I don't need to be a role model. And I think that kind of stops the argument a little too early because I don't think Barack Obama, specifically at that time, needed a role model. He knew exactly what he stood for, and he knew what he wanted Michael Jordan to say. But he recognized Michael Jordan's status as a celebrity as a sort of political lubricant that could have been very helpful for what he, for what Barack Obama stood for, and what he try, was trying to get accomplished. And I thought he gave a really interesting take on that, but then sort of ended up going in this direction of. Well, Michael Jordan had a lot of things to think about, like his brand at that point. So I kind of understand why he wouldn't do that, but I still wanted him to do it. And so I, I, I just found that really interesting. And I found it in a way that kind of moves that conversation forward as far as do we need our athletes to be role models? Because I do think it's more than just like seven-year-old on the block wondering what his hero thinks about all of this stuff happening around him. It, it, it kind of puts it all into perspective as and then they kind of they talk about the vote count and everything like that and just how Michael Jordan's, you know, anything that he said could have swayed that. Um, I do wonder about that. And then just to kind of wrap up this little spiel here, the fact that 
Michael Jordan still is apolitical, basically, or just at least publicly so. Now that kind of flies in the face of what Barack Obama said as far as, well, he was dealing with Jordan brand at the time. So he just had a lot and, and kind of focusing on his game at the time. And now Michael Jordan doesn't play basketball. He's a billion dollar per like figure who gets to, you know, approve every single frame of a documentary made up about him. Like he's not that focused on Jordan brand anymore. It doesn't need to be. So the fact that he's still apolitical publicly, it, it just means that that's his personality. I just think he's an apolitical person and, and you can kind of put any excuse you want on it. And Jordan tried to put excuses on it, but the fact is he just doesn't care. Well, I tell you what kind of bothered me about that. So We've all heard, we've talked about it in this podcast. We've all heard the Republicans buy shoes lines a million times. And and when we talk about it, we use it as a criticism for Jordan and it's well-founded. But now that we got a little bit of context, I never knew where the hell that came from. And I'm now going to forget the uh, politician's name, but that came up. He said Republicans buy shoes too, because he wouldn't back the opponent of a guy who was seemingly remarkably racist and like stood for all the wrong things mm-hmm. in politics. You know I mean? Like he, he had some nasty line, the, the guy, there's no joy in Mudville tonight. They showed on the, um, on the documentary. And so I never knew what it was that Jordan was refusing to participate. in. I had just never done that research to see that he refused to participate in keeping a guy who looked like he should be in the KKK out of public office wasn't the best look, you know, like the, the more information we found out about that, the least I liked about the story. Just Yeah. But I mean, I think the context is important too, right? I mean, Jordan alluded to it. He said that question was asked when I was on the bus around my teammates and it was just kind of a, a quick answer of, do you do this? And he was like, once he thought about it, he went back and donated to the guy's political campaign, well, but which on. I don't think was enough. I, right. I agree. I still think he should have endorsed you're missing him a step. more. You're missing a step though. So you're absolutely right. He does say it on the bus and that's how he brings it up. And that's totally fair. And he donated to the person's campaign. The part you're missing is when he says, look, my mom asked me to back that person. Right. And I said, mom, I can't do that. Instead, I'll donate between those two. What would have helped the guy more? A word from Michael Jordan saying, hey, vote for this guy or some anonymous donation. You know, there's yeah. no question it was that middle ground. And, and you know, he ignored his mom. Yeah, no, he definitely. That's more on the 11th hole than he did give to that campaign. Right. <laughs> it's just I, I, I yeah. it's just and still all that stuff. Like I'm around my teammates, blah, blah, blah. Like it was taken out of context. I don't care anymore. Like that election was like 30 years ago or whatever. Like I don't care. The fact that he's still like we're still dealing with a lot of problems right now and michael jordan is still one of the biggest celebrities in the world and so take all the context and excuses off of this he still hasn't done ever and it's a problem and it's and the reason it's and again it's not a problem because people like him need to be role models i don't that's a whole other conversation i'm not sure that we need to be having the problem is that he keeps masking his inactivity with excuses that don't hold up no, I understand. What you're saying is if he had just come out and been like, look, I don't want to be political. Fine. Yes. You don't want yes. to be political. If you're coming out and saying I'm not being political because it affects my money and it's no longer affecting your money and you're still not being political, then what the hell is going on? Yeah. Exactly. But I think to go back to the original question, Barack Obama was super cool and definitely tried <laughs> to steal the show. But I think 
he he still loses to our man. I just looked up his name, John Michael Wozniak. That's the security <laughs> guard flipping quarters. He is by far the coolest dude on those two episodes. This I don't. I won't make this political, and uh, I'll, I'll make it really quick. But the thing that spoke to me about Obama, and you guys just helped me realize this. So you know, Obama went in. He wanted to take a shot at Jordan. But he's also one of the greatest communicators our nation has ever seen, ever. And he realized the, you know, what what was this documentary about? It wasn't to to house Jordan. It was to understand who he was and celebrate him. And Obama found a way to tell a very like give some kind of scalding hot criticism, but in in communicated that criticism in a passion. That when you're watching it, you don't feel like he begrudges Jordan at all. You don't feel like he's not a giant fan. In fact, you feel like, my God, even Obama thinks this is the greatest player of all time, even while he's critiquing him. So, I mean, Obama's ability to give a speech and to communicate is uh, is untouchable. But that's probably a discussion point for another podcast. Real quick, I just want to throw out one more name if we're if we're nominating coolest people. Um, James Wozniak, great, yep, totally, um, and Obama, and obviously Michael Jordan. But uh, I felt blown away by the entire Seinfeld sequence. Yes, because you could tell that that dude was dumbstruck by like just being in that situation, and like, and so for the entire scene, I was like, oh, I totally relate to this guy. This is amazing. Like big old grin on his face, just stoked to be meeting Michael Jordan, and then you know Phil Jackson kicks him out. And then right when I'm like, oh, I can totally relate to this guy, he He's turns funny. around, points at the board and says, by the way, that's not going to work. So one of the plays had been drawn up. Yep. He's super specific about it. This one, this one right <laughs> here, you're going to want to, you're going to want to erase this one. That is so funny. Like I was, I, my wife and I were on the couch dying laughing. How does he have the wherewithal to do that in the midst of being like completely dumbstruck? And right before he does that, and it's in between uh, Jackson kicking him out and him doing that. He, he I, I think, makes eye contact with Will Perdue or somebody super random. And, and they don't say anything. And he goes, hey, how's it going? Like, of course I'm here. Like, he, he, he says hello to that person like he's a co-worker, not like he's like a uber famous comedian who's not supposed to be in the locker room. At he, all. He, he shook somebody's hand and told them to have a good game. So, uh, <laughs> and Michael Jordan is standing there and like he calls him Jerry. And then when they leave, he isn't like, it was good to see you. It was good to meet you. He says something like, I'll talk to you later or something like that was a relate like that's a relationship that they have now. And Jerry Seinfeld at that time was at the it was the height of Seinfeld. And and so I think like you could argue in entertainment, there was no two people bigger at that point than Jerry Seinfeld and Michael Jordan. And yeah, Jerry was dumbstruck because he was like a, a you know, fish out of water. It's just not that's not the apartment in Seinfeld. So to see him <laughs> anywhere else is kind of strange. And so it, let alone a locker room of a championship team. But then, yeah, next, I mean, the to walk out of like, that's not going to work. It's just <laughs> freaking incredible. Yeah, I actually, I agree with this. He was more badass than Barack Obama in the documentary. How many people could Jerry have named in that locker room? So, you know, Mike, Phil Jackson, for sure. You know, but was Jerry a basketball fan and using his celebrity to scratch an itch? Or was he just a celebrity recognizing that this was another team of celebrities and he was just in there? He's a Knicks fan. The Knicks and the Bulls had those rivalries. Yeah, so go. I would imagine he was watching a lot of those games. I He probably doesn't know like one of the several white centers, but he does know MJ, I'm sure, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman. I'm sure he knows like a bunch of those. He probably knew Steve Kerr. Like, he probably knew like the big guys. 
Fair enough. Let's transition, boys, to our last topic of the day. It is my current favorite new segment, and it is entitled Brackets. Ideas easy. We all love brackets. I don't know if, if you don't like brackets, just stop listening to this podcast. In fact, I don't believe you because everyone loves brackets. And in this segment, what we do is we come up with a question and then we allow a bracket to provide its answer. Today's question, who is the greatest fictitious player to have ever laced them up and played in a movie or a TV commercial or anywhere when they had fake players. And I've got a bracket sitting in front of me, but before we even turn to the players, I'm going to give the mic to Marcus because Wes, Maxime, you do know this. Wes, you may not know it. We've been preparing this thing for a while, and I asked for Marcus and Maxime's opinions on who we should have in it and seating and the whole nine yards. And since I've come up with the bracket, Marcus has just been whining about the people who are in it the entire time, and I feel like he's going to be distracted. So right now, MT, just get all your concerns out, put them on the table so that we can actually jump in and get out some answers. These are not concerns. These are valid criticisms of your bracket. Just Um, concerns. Yes. So my issue with it, and Wes, I'm sure you will fully agree with this, is that the players Bram selected for this are half of them are real NBA players that just have a different name because they were in a movie. Like you can't just put Shaquille O'Neal in there and because his name was Neon Boudreaux He's or whatever Shaquille it was. O'Neal. It's Shaquille O'Neal. O'Neal. It's literally Shaquille O'Neal. The only difference is, is the name. It is, okay, is so not then, true. Then why didn't you put Johnny Kilroy in? I should have. You should absolutely should have suggested him. Although, to be fair, because Johnny Kilroy was, in fact, Michael Jordan. That commercial, the entire idea behind it was that Michael Jordan was pretending to be other people and presenting there. Neon Boudreaux was not Shaquille O'Neal pretending to be Neon Boudreaux. He was his own character entirely. For example, Neon Boudreaux seemed to have more effort in the way that Shaquille O'Neal never did. He didn't, he wasn't the type of player who had to play himself into shape. He just showed up. But a much better example is Uncle Drew. I don't know how old Kyrie Irving is, but he doesn't have gray hair, nor does he have arthritis. I don't know how uh, old Michael J. Fox is, but he's not a werewolf and sure as isn't a goddamn teen wolf. So there are, there are differences between these people. I understand the concern, but I don't think it's a valid one. Michael J. Fox puts on a werewolf costume and then flies through the air, you know, in a way that is unhuman. When you're looking at Neon Boudreaux or Jesus Shuttlesworth or whoever the other people are that you selected that are real, even even Uncle Drew, just because he has gray hair, it doesn't mean he's playing like he has arthritis. As soon as the ball is dropped, he's dribbling like he's Kyrie Irving. He's not. It's it's just an NBA player at that point. You have half a bracket of fake players using real players doing it. I Mm -hmm. think instead of having them, you should have had key key really good players like Jackie Moon, Sandy Lyle from Along Came Polly. You could have had Orlando Jones from Bedazzled, Kevin Malone from The Office, who had a great jump shot. Like all these players were available out there. And just to me, it cheats because like who's not going to pick Neon and Jesus Shuttlesworth to go when you're really just picking Shaq and Ray Allen? If we were doing the most entertaining fake player bracket, then Jackie Moon would be my one seed. We're not. We're trying to figure out the best one. And bad news, this will require some imagination from you. Undoubtedly, if you're approaching it as Jeetle, or as Ray Allen as opposed to Jesus Shuttlesworth, this thing won't work. 
But for another another example, Jesus Shuttlesworth had anger problems in a way that Ray Allen never did. You know, we're going to have to look at them as the character, not as the actual player. Just a bad idea. You should you missed the boat on this, I think. But we will continue it, and we will see Jesus and Neon in the finals. Uh, I don't know, Wes, weigh in on this. Um, it was definitely a challenge. And as a fan of anarchy in most things, um, it was challenging for me to figure out ways for me to add elements of anarchy to this bracket, but it was a fun one. Though I, I Neon Bordreau is basically young Shaq, even in the movie, um, if not better. And so it's going to be really hard to take him down. Uh, that said, um, there was a lot of fic- uh, fake players I would have liked to see in this, but I think the bracket basically lays out in a way that uh, that works. You've got Shaq on, you got Neon Boudreaux on one side, you got a couple NBA players on the other side of the bracket. It would be easy for them to sort of meet in the middle, but I guarantee you by the end of this thing, that will not be the case. Here is our current bracket. The one seed, Jesus Shuttlesworth, six foot five, 205 pound, I guess, shooting guard. Uh, coming out of He Got Game, our two seed, Neon Boudreaux, 7'1", 324-pound center out of Blue Chips. Number three, Teen Wolf, my secret favorite, 5'4", 145-pound uh, mythical creature, I guess is the best way to put him at the four slot, Butch McCray, 6'7", 194-pound uh, small forward, also out of Blue Chips to address Marcus's concern. This is the other guy at his Penny Hardaway. Five, one of my favorite movie characters of all time, Billy Hoyle, 5'9", 182 pounds. At the sixth slot, Will Smith, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, 6'1", 185 pounds. I don't know what you call him, probably a front court player. Seven, Uncle Drew, 6'2", 193. And the eighth slot, in an attempt to try to bring in more people, we made it a play-in game. And I'll tell you what, I will include Jackie Moon, We'll include Jim Halpert from The Office. We'll include Kyle and Shep from Above the Rim uh, and Lola Bunny. And why don't we start there as the play-in game? So imagine this is a game of 21. We've got Lola Bunny. She is, uh, I guess, Bugs Bunny's girlfriend. I'm not really sure how to address her. I, I think that uh, Wes called her. Bugs Bunny's wannabe uh, girlfriend. He has a major crush on her. She is a fiercely independent woman bunny. Um, and she won't be held down by no man. <laughs> Boom. <You're> uh, right. <laughs> Shep was, you know, so Kyle and Shep are the two, I guess, good guys out of Above the Rim. Kyle was the the kid who was fighting for a college scholarship. Shep was his, I, I, I don't remember well. I want to say they were related in some way. The thing I do remember was that Shep was a former high school superstar whose career had been derailed by the death of a very good friend, the thing we see right in the beginning of the movie. In fact, I believe the friend died because he was playing 21 on the roof of a building. Always a bad idea. If you're considering doing that, just don't. You could definitely fall to your death, much like Chef's boy. And Chef's huge highlight was, I think he went for like 38 while wearing jeans in the championship game of Above the Rim. Jim Halpert, we saw play in the office uh, hoop uh, episode. So those are our playing guys, and then Jackie Moon um, from uh, semi-professional. Uh, so in that twenty-one game, who do you guys have coming out of it? 
can we just can we just move along here because it's obviously Lola Bunny. Cool. Uh, it's it's not even close, and it's it's very important to me that she moves on. So um, <laughs> look, she walks in. All right, and I'll save some of my Lola takes because she's going to make this bracket. I will not let this go until she makes this bracket and goes against Jesus Shuttlesworth. Uh, but she basically comes in and jumps over a monster at some point. All right. That's not anything that any of these other players in the bracket play in or otherwise can do. And so, and she just like, she walks into the open court gym in space jam and, and just immediately impresses Bugs Bunny and Michael Jordan. And if Michael Jordan's impressed, then I don't know what else we're doing here. Lola Bunny gets in. I'm with you. Uh, I love the idea of a fictitious humanoid bunny, to use your phrase, somehow making it out of the 21 game. You and forgot to, the word sexy. I and, to, and to pacify Marcus, Marcus, let's pretend that Lola Bunny is played by Michael Jordan for the rest of this. So this is just my, I'm joking. I'll go Lola as well. Marcus, Maxime, who do you guys have coming up? It hurts me not to have my boy Jackie Moon move on because <laughs> he could have had one of the top three best promoters in the league promoting this bracket in this podcast. But um, yeah, I got to go with Lola too. If for no, no other reason, um, all the le- reasons that Wes listed and I'm going to add to bring a little gender diversity to this bracket as well. I think the women can hoop as well. So let's get Lola in there. We did need it. Is it a clean sweep from you, Maxine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the my one consideration is for Jimmy Chitwood because I feel like coach Dale has to be the worst coach of all time. Yep. And yet somehow this dude still shines and you know, game winners in a state championship matter. Um, so I guess special shout out to Jimmy Chitwood, but you gotta have Lola bunny. And Jimmy Chitwood is a savage. I mean, if if memory serves from Hoosiers, they weren't going to go to him in the end. Right. And then ultimately he went over the huddle and convinced Gene Hackman to, uh, to give him the rocks. I know that, that makes sense to me, but yet and still it is Lola and she earns a first round matchup with Jesus Shuttlesworth boys. I love Lila or Lola Bunny. I understand the need for gender equality. I also believe that women can hoop. I have a daughter. But Shuttlesworth is number one for a reason. I should have included that quote where they have all of the, the various coaches cooing over his talents. I'm going Jesus Shuttlesworth probably in a landslide coming out at the 1A bracket. Okay, so you guys decide. Do I go last here when I just completely eviscerate all of your Jesus Shuttlesworth takes or should I just go ahead and get that out of the way now? Go now, please. Um, first of all, key scene in He Got Game uh, with Jesus Shuttlesworth was him laying in the bed with several naked women, correct? Absolutely right. Okay, Lola, not a fan of Jesus Shuttlesworth. Um, does not like his womanizing tendencies, and so she's going to go full tilt Lola Bunny on this. Uh, here are Lola Bunny's redeeming qualities. And here's why she beats Jesus Shuttlesworth, and here's why it's really not even close. Reason number one, she somehow becomes unstoppable if somebody calls her doll, which is an easy, easily exploitable superpower because you could just have a teammate yell doll at her throughout the entire game. And chances are, with Jesus' womani- Jesus's womanizing tendencies, he would just do it anyway. So he would immediately just take, she would take over from there. Reason number two, yes, she's only three foot two, but she has great hops. And so it's the best of both worlds because she's got this low center of gravity, which makes her quick and and agile. But like I said, she can literally jump over like an 18 foot monster and dunk. So not concerned about the height issue there. Reason number three, on the most important play of the game against the monsters, 
Michael Jordan trusts her with the ball. So if she's good enough for Michael Jordan, she's good enough for me. She also has, because she's a woman, bunny, humanoid thing, um, the, the element of surprise on her side. So she'll at least get a couple of points right away just from that if this is a, game, a one-on-one game to 11. I think Lola, the eight seed, upsets Jesus Shuttlesworth as the one seed, um, 11 to like six. Amazing set of points. You also hit on something that's remarkably important, the generalized rules. Yes, uh, they play to 11 by ones. We'll say threes count as two, if that changes anything. You haven't completely flipped my mind. I'm going to stick with Shuttlesworth, and then we'll turn over to, to Marcus to be our decision maker. But I will make this point, and I'm not sure why. One of the things that concerns me about the matchup is that Jesus Shuttlesworth tends to look past his opponent. Remember when he played his father and he thought it was going to be 21-0 and then Denzel put up the first two, first two uh, buckets on him and Shuttlesworth looked a little bit shocked? If he brings that same lack of intensity to a matchup with Lola Bunny, I'm worried about its outcome. So I'm sticking Jesus. I mean, he is the number one seed, but I see where you're coming from. Marcus, who's moving on? Well, oh, I think, you know... Ray Allen has some deficiencies to his game. I mean, Jesus Shuttlesworth has some deficiencies to his game. And he does. He does. I think that the whole, he's going to be busy trying to get to the Celtics reunion party and hanging the uh, Kevin Garnett's rafter when they retire it, his jerseys. So I think Lola Bunny goes on. I think I'm firmly in the camp of, I'm going to be voting to make sure this bracket goes the way that it should have gone. Yeah, I got you. So right. I'm going Lola Bunny in the oh. upset here with Wes. Marcus, Marcus's vote no longer counts. Maxine, <laughs> who you got? Who you putting on? And we'll just be asking you questions from here on out. Okay, I let's just talk about some of Jesus Shuttlesworth's um, characteristics here. Okay, so you already brought up the game with his dad, but like, you know, not all games against dads go the way you expect them to go. I don't know if you guys remember... Um, in One Tree Hill, um, Nathan goes up against his father in that like in like early on in the series, and like dude just gets in his head. So that's you know there's no guarantee that you're gonna beat the game against the dad. But okay, and, and credit to Jason Concepcion for this one, who um, helped me remember that literally. Uh, dude was so good that the governor of New York busted his dad out of jail in order to get him to go to his alma mater. Like, dude was it? Jesus Shuttlesworth's dad was in jail for killing Jesus's mom, and that was not enough to keep the governor of New York from not busting him out of jail. So, dude must be really good. You know what I'm saying? That's absolutely right. Of course I do. Are you are you finishing this with Jesus? Oh, I'm finishing this with saying because I feel like I, I don't know. This is tight, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out all of my takes here. Um, I love that uh, that um, that Aaron Copeland did the soundtrack for for you know the non hip hop version of He Got Game, but like anybody you know, we were just talking about having hip hop on the court for these fanless games. Anybody that can ball that hard with um, Ho Down playing deserves a vote <laughs> fair these are all true are, are, are either of these points moving uh you Wes or marcus no um i just have one question for the group here do you believe because we've got a classic eight one seed matchup here and you guys as warriors fans 
should be more in favor of the eight seed moving on. Classic uh, we believe I, okay. scenario here. Here's here's my summation Small ball take. versus Jesus My summation know? take, and I'm going to push us forward. Uh, here's my summation take. So, Wes, what you don't know is that that was an amazing collection of pseudo f*** you takes to me. Marcus's was very easy to take. Obviously, that was an F.U. and a well-founded one. What I haven't shared with you in the audience is that uh, he wasn't the only person who had some concerns about my field. Maxime also felt like, for example, Nathan from One Tree Hill should be considered and pointed out that we weren't the only people to have done this. Someone else has done it. Nathan goes up against his father in that, like, in, like, early on in the series and, like, Dude just gets in his head. So that's, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to beat the game against the dad. But okay, and credit to Jason Concepcion for this one, who um, helped me remember that literally, uh, dude was so good that the governor of New York busted his dad out of jail in order to get him to go to his alma mater. If you rerun the take, what you'll hear is Nathan from One Tree Hill and a take back to Jason Stone, <laughs> and somebody else has already done this. So I'm just surrounded by <laughs> you takes, which is fantastic for me. Um, and what I'm going to do, I'm going to reward the one person who's apparently, well, that's, that's totally unfair. I'm going to reward the research that you've dumped into this, Wes. I am flipping my opinion. I'm going with Lola Bunny for you, buddy. Yes. I feel like you've talked me into it. I like the We Believe setting, and maybe it'll shut Marcus up because there's one less NBA guy. Let's move Not to the a chance. other Not side a chance. of the bracket. <laughs> We've got Uncle Drew. At the seven seed, 6'2", 193 pounds versus the two seed, Neon Boudreaux, 7'1", 324. I'll go first. So I wanted to say Uncle Drew. I really did. I think Neon's going to have one hell of a problem staying with him in the open court. I think a lot of it's going to depend on who starts off with the ball, right? And if they're doing that thing where you shoot from the top of the key to figure out who is the guy who, who ultimately opens up with it, Kyrie, I mean, Uncle Drew is going to have a much better shot at it. If he starts off with it, Neon's not going to be able to guard him. Now, here are my concerns. Uncle Drew is an old-ass man, just a old-ass man, and we have never seen him play one set of defense at any stage ever. And if he has to play a young Neon Boudreau in the post, even for two seconds, his back is getting destroyed. His knees are falling apart. I mean, you can't have a plus 60-year-old man playing Neon. So, it pains me, but I'm going to move him on. I'm going Neon Boudreaux only because I think Uncle Drew's age becomes a factor and he can't finish out the game. He probably wins, let's say, 11-7, and I've got uh, Neon moving on. Who do you guys got? I think that's exactly right. I think 11-7 seems good, but you know, Uncle Drew gets out to like a little bit of a lead, but he loses that lead just yep. for all the reasons you're saying. He's older. Um you know, I, I don't like after the wear and tear of, of several possessions, I think Neon Boudreaux would get the best of them. And let's keep in mind, Neon right now is a blue chip prospect. He is in the like getting into the prime <laughs> of his career. So not only is Uncle Drew old as all hell, but Neon Boudreaux is just like in peak young form. Like he could probably, if the game was like played to 11, yeah, he wins like 11, 6, 11, 7. But if the game were played to 50, he probably wins 50 to 7. Like yeah, I don't I think, think Uncle Drew scores again. And, and look, I know Uncle Drew is like Kyrie Irving in a wig, but in, on the, in, the, in the movie, settles too much for step-back threes. Yeah, he does. Yes, he's, he does. And, and he doesn't really get to the rim as much, which is how you would beat Neon Boudreaux in this. And really, his biggest asset was as a passer. He was a, he was a playmaker for his team. And in a one-on-one -on -one tournament, that goes away. You're not playmaking anymore. 
Um, and so I don't, I don't trust Uncle Drew's ability to finish. I think Neon would eventually just start playing off of him a little bit. He's, he's quick enough to, in blue chips to, to drop back and get to the rim. And in that case, Uncle Drew doesn't have it. I don't think he has the Kyrie Irving-like ability to finish. I think he's got a 50-year-old man ability to finish, or however old yep. he is in this movie. Right. And uh, I, 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 like you, wanted to find a way for Uncle Drew to move on. But, I mean, you got you to gotta keep it real here. And Neon, I think, just wipes the floor with him. He starts off like 4-0, then one hard foul on Uncle Drew and everything goes the wrong direction. Yeah, exactly. Marcus, yeah. where are you at? So you have, I mean, you have LSU versus Duke. You have the Lakers versus the Cavs, Celtics, Nets. You know, classic matchups okay, here. Maxime, who do you got? Um, Maxime, no. uh, what's your take? Man? I think it's not even close. I, I agree. I think the size of, of Neon Shaq <laughs> at that moment in his career, his footwork was so crazy. I mean, he, he was 300 pounds and he moved around like he was a small forward. So I don't think it's even close. I think he just backs him down to the post and just crumples his his arthritic hip in about the third play we move on because i think this one's obvious and maxime i'm going to f- ask you to give us our first vote in this next one and i think it's our first real hard one this is the three six matchup it's the one that always kind of you know gets us fired up um the three slot is teen wolf 5'4, 145 pound mystical beast unbelievable offensive player maybe one of the most talented offensive uh, basketball players i've ever had the pleasure to watch and on the other side the sixth seed Fresh Prince, 6'185 pounds, played for uh, Bel Air High School. Uh, maybe one of the most impressive plays I've ever seen. There was a scene I watched where uh, Will was asked to uh, be the guy who took the jump. He took the jump ball, went up, and instead of tipping the ball back to a teammate, from what I could tell on the camera footage, he caught the jump ball and then just turned it into a jump shot from about half court and buried it, which is just, I've never seen that happen. That's not an easy thing. So, there's our matchup. Maxime, who do you have coming out? Yeah, it's a wolf. Yeah. Yep. I mean, Go ahead. case closed. What do you, What more do you want? It's a wolf. So you've got Team Wolf moving on. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, well, I mean, unassailable analysis. It is factually <laughs> accurate that he is, in fact, a wolf. Uh, Wes, how are you going to combat that wolf take? Um Agreed on both of your uh, what you guys both said, Bram. It, it was th- to me this was it was surprising to me that this was a three six because I thought this was really a lot closer than that. I might have made this the four five had I been making the bracket. Agreed, Maxine. He is at a two, wolf. At two West. <laughs> God damn it, dude! I can't get one person to just be like, "Good job on this, you bastards." All right, go ahead. Uh, so here's my scouting report. On I went deep dive, watched a lot of game film. Actually, just like pushed aside my day of act, like scouting actual NBA draft prospects for the real life NBA draft that may happen <laughs> at some point to scout. I used those tools that I had developed there to scout this. So here's my pros and cons for each of these players. Um, for Teen Wolf, pros, high efficiency finisher. I, I don't think I've ever seen him miss a layup. Um, creative passer, he can dish it with both hands, um, but that becomes less of an issue but or it becomes less of a factor in a one-on-one game, but it shows that he's ambidextrous, can dribble with both hands. Um, Defensively, plays passing lanes well, and he's a high IQ situational player, right? He knows when to draw fouls. He knows, you know, time and and possession. He's he's very in tune with all of those things. The cons, clearly undersized at five foot four and like 20 pounds. That's hard. Um, Limited range, not at all comfortable with his outside jumper. (laughs) He he tends to settle. he He tries to get to the rim a little bit too much to me. 
um, will actually even even when people are playing off of him will still drive. And I think that could be an issue in this matchup. And he only when he does drive, always goes right, yeah. never goes left. Um, so I think in a game, in a possession to possession one on one game, you start to guess his tendencies pretty fairly soon. Um, also, questionable handle. If you have noticed, he always watches the ball when he dribbles. So uh, I don't trust his handle in the open court versus Fresh Prince, creative ball handler with a very fast first step. Um, he can play above the rim with obviously good size at six foot one and uh, just ridiculous confidence in his outside jumper. Like you said, Brandon is willing to shoot it at half court after the jump ball. Um, the one con for Fresh Prince, questionable decision maker. He's a selfish player in all facets of the game. It was kind of one of the storylines in Fresh Prince, but who cares if it's a one-on-one game? You're supposed to be selfish. So not an issue. Um, I think that Teen Wolf's, some of his strengths are within the team, the team concept, right? I mentioned jumping passing lanes. There's no passes. There's no jumping lanes to pass defensive. And that's his best defensive attribute. And so I think six, one Fresh Prince can kind of take it to Teen Wolf. I've got Fresh Prince moving on here. I feel like you're crazy. You did not address Maxime's main point, the fact that Teen Wolf is, in fact, a wolf and <laughs> Fresh France is not. Um, I am so heavily in favor of Teen Wolf. I don't even know if I can give you an objective take. So instead of telling you who I would pick, I'll leave it to Marcus. You, it's it's 1-1. One, one. Fresh Prince one way, Teen Wolf the other. Neither of these guys are NBA players, so this seems to be perfectly suited for you. MT, who are you pushing on? Yeah, I like this matchup. This is... Shocking. Neither are real NBA yeah, players. Shocking. Oh my God. Okay. Maxine, <laughs> okay, can we get a big noise? And every time he talks, <laughs> wah! I mean, just every time. And it's happened. The ship has sailed. This is a good matchup. Um, so the, uh, I agree. Teen Wolf, his his biggest flaw is that he has to be really angry to turn into the wolf to continue to play. And he's much better at the full court game. But I think that gives him an advantage because he won't tire out so quickly. If you'll remember, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, that court they played on was ridiculously small. I don't even think it was a (laughs) a half-court court. I think the full, like, you could throw a pass, you know, a chess pass and just clear the entire full court. So um, I think Fresh Prince loses uh, stamina quickly. I don't think he's used to kind of a full-on, full court even if it's one-on-one, like a full half-court setting, and he just gets tired quickly and Teen Wolf moves on. Let's go. We're back on the same team. Maxime, cancel that baby noise. I was off base on that. (laughs) Shouldn't have said it. I'm kind of embarrassed by it. Let's move to the other side of the bracket. This one's hard, boys. Four, five. Four, Butch McRae, 6'7", 194-pound freshman. I'm forgetting the name of the school from Blue Chips. It was like Big State. But this is the kid played by Anthony Hardaway. Um, he is also the guy who ultimately transferred out if memory serves. He didn't like all the pressure that came with the, uh, the pseudo cheating that was going on with the recruitment. On the other side, we've got the five seat, Billy Hoyle, five, nine, 182 pounds. Uh, maybe my favorite movie character of all time. This unfortunately gives a sense of how old I am, but I grew up and watched this when I was, I don't know, when did this come out? When we were like, 11, 12, something like that. And as a white basketball player who uh, was one of the only white dudes playing in some of the sports I was playing in, it was cool having him out there and watching him play. So I always kind of wanted to be Billy Hoyle. In fact, I earned the nickname Billy for one season, uh, probably not well earned, but I did have teammates calling me. So I've got an emotional attachment. My analysis, I've got Billy Hoyle here and it's 
I, I think skill-wise, Butch McRae at 6'7 versus 5'9 Billy Hoyle is a real problem. But I'm also assuming they're going to shoot for it to see who starts off with the rock. We've seen that scene play out in White Men Can't Jump. My boy Billy is certainly going to win that. And if he starts off with The Rock, the other thing I think is going to happen before they start to play is that Billy's going to put some money on himself. We know he has gambling problems, and we know it can go either way. In this instance, I think it acts as a motivation. He starts off with the ball. Butch is not ready for the pressure of a matchup with a guy of his celebrity. And I think Billy walks away Ah, let's say 11-8. It's a little closer than I would like, but his sharp shooting and uh, and the fact that he had money on the game puts him over the top. Let's go to you, Wes. Do you agree with me? Uh, I do. This was – so the 4-5, the 3-6 matchups are really, really difficult here. Um, disregarding the fact that I think you only included Billy Hoyle to tell us that story about how everybody called you Billy Hoyle for one did year. Did I tell you life. that? They did. Call um, <laughs> but let me sit back. Cause I got some details on that. Um, I got their names here. In fact, Maxine, let's bring in the mystery guest. He's the guy who came up with the nickname announcing. Yeah. Go <laughs> yourself. Wes. Go ahead. Um, here's the other thing in a one-on-one game. And I think you're right. If they shoot for it, Billy has a, a, a an advantage, at least getting the ball first. Right. Um, in one-on-one settings, speaking from my own experience at least, a lot of this is just like heart and want to. It's a lot of like going and getting that rebound and switching possession. It's a lot of it's a lot of uh, playing up into your defender when it's like the eighth, ninth point, tenth point when you're getting to that level and you're not just playing off of them and letting them settle for the jumper that they ultimately want to take. It's a lot of that stuff. And I think Billy Hoyle has like that want to, that heart, that grit. And Butch McCray clearly does not, right? And so I, I, it, it's a tough one. I think Butch is because you also have the, Butch McRae's like in the again like Neon Bordeaux in the heart of it in the in the prime of his career peak physical condition. Billy Hoyle is not, but I, I do go with Billy Hoyle here. I think he's got a little bit more one skill, and he's gonna he's gonna push Butch to the brink. And I don't think Butch has has the uh, the cojones to 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 hang with Billy. Did I tell you about the month of my life where my family members called me Butch McRae? I mean, it, it was weird, but you know, we'll we'll talk about that later on. Maxime, do you agree? I mean, we've already we've already pushed him on, but I'd love a third opinion. No, no, I absolutely agree. I think this is uh, this is one of the situations where you got to look at what the state uh, what the game is is being played, and this this format favors the street ball. Um, mentality that Billy Hoyle excels at. And I mean, even though he's got, you know, Wesley Snipes is sort of like a, a tag team. Um, I think just Butch McRae can't, can't adapt to that kind of environment nearly as well. And just to, um, just to point out, you were dead, right? That big state is the university for he got game. We're actually talking about Western university here. Ah, there we go. I mean, to my defense, I had all these notes that were hopefully going to help me get through this. Didn't know that for (laughs) sure we're going to do the fake player bracket and put them to the side. No longer have them now. And I'm also a little bit distracted about just getting attacked from all sides. So uh, my apologies. Which brings us to our final four on one side of the bracket. The surprising eight seed upset Lola Bunny. Versus the fifth seed, Billy Hoyle on the other side. Number two, Neon Boudreaux. Versus number three, Teen Wolf. I want to start with what I feel is going to be a bigger fight. Let's go Lola Bunny versus Billy Hoyle. Wes, this is your girl. 
Tell us why she moves on. Uh, um, this is tough for me because Billy Hoyle uh, similarly was one of my favorite characters. Uh, Did they call you Billy? Did anybody ever call you Billy? Did I tell you that they called me Billy for a while? So I think <laughs> with Lola though, the, the doll factor still matters and I don't mean to harp on it, but she like, if you watch Space Jam, she literally becomes unstoppable and Billy Hoyle is kind of a person who would call her doll. But he'd know and, it, wouldn't he? He'd do that research, you know, cause he probably has money on this game too. I mean, I, I think he'd be a little bit more careful on that. Not, not the same way Jesus would. It's fair. Um, it still doesn't change the fact that Lola can have somebody out there and just scream doll at her. And she just like <laughs> Bruce Banner's this thing to use Maxine's reference earlier. I like, I, I actually, I, I, I was like trying to get Lola into this bracket, but now that I'm like faced with this decision, I really want to move Billy Hoyle on and I can't in good conscience do it. Like if you watched, I watched clips of Space Jam. She's unstoppable. Lola Bunny moves on. Low again, low center of gravity can just jump right over Billy Hoyle. Um, I think Billy would be briefly distracted. Again, surprise element helps Lola. Um, I think I have to move Lola on. All right, I'm gonna go. So it sounds like in order for Billy to beat Lola, we really have to embrace this Bruce Banner versus Hulk thing that happens with her when somebody screams out doll, right? And I do believe that Billy could take down non-doll Lola. So the my scenario, the reason I think Billy moves on is I think, you know, Billy, again, he's got some money on this. It means the world to him. He's finally getting some notoriety. He's, uh, you know, fresh off having missed that dunk and wants to restore his confidence in himself. And I think he cheats. I think what happens is he brings somebody with him, maybe with a bullhorn something. And that person's only job is to make sure that if anybody gets close to screaming the word doll, this person screams into the bullhorn so that Lola can't hear it. For as long as that happens based purely on her, oh God, it's hard for me. You're right. She was virtually unbeatable, but no, I've got to go Billy Hoyle over Lola Bunny. That, that in particular portion of this podcast has gone on far enough. I've got Billy and I know we're running short on time for you, MT. So let's make you the decision maker who moves to the finals. So just for the record, I can confirm that we used to call Bram Billy Hoyle. I was oh. part of that group. And it is confirmed that and blessed ankles. And we can, I think we talked about that in the previous pod, but those two, those were his two nicknames for best sure. Friends. Okay. Make sure that everything I said, that if it sounded like I was against Marcus before I was stupid wrong, <laughs> that's, I'm so sorry about that. Also, by the way, you may notice that three of the top four here are not NBA basketball players. So I thought that would make you happy too. Oh, I noticed it. <laughs> yeah. I actually would have picked, picked Butch McCray because I think he's Penny Hardaway was criminally underrated as a player but um moving forward so i think billy hoyle's biggest problem is he doesn't understand the concept of dry mouthedness and if you've seen the movie you understand that and i think that rears its ugly head again and i got lola bunny moving on oh god damn it all right lola bunny in the finals i don't know i almost didn't put her in the play-in game i did it to pacify west and now she's on my sheet in the finals Number two, Neon Boudreaux versus number three, Teen Wolf. I'll go first. Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf in a landslide. Teen Wolf starts off with the ball because, well, we know that Neon cannot shoot from three. Wes is right. We didn't see Teen Wolf pull up too frequently, but I have to believe that he's got further range than does Neon. And if he starts with the ball, 
Shaq can't stop this guy. He's the fastest person I've ever seen. He's the most gifted one-on-one scorer that has ever graced a silver screen. And he was coached by, I don't remember the guy's name, but he had you know unbelievable chops and taught people how to use their skill sets as much as they could. I get it, coach. What's that from? Let me give you a little advice. There's three rules that I live by. Never get less than 12 hours sleep. Never play cards with a guy who's got the same first name as a city. And never go near a lady who's got a tattoo of a dagger on her body. Now you stick with that. Everything else is cream cheese. Great game there, Scotty. Thanks, coach. I think Teen Wolf walks away at like 11-0, not because... He is better than Neon and, you know, that much, but because he starts off with the ball and is just a blur for a quick 11 points and pushes him into the finals. Uh, Wes. Yeah. What do you got? (laughs) So your first mistake was assuming that Teen Wolf had any sort of range. He does not. Like, like, he's Ricky Rubio, but like a little, like slightly less wolf-like looking. And I just... Not much, though. Not much. You're right (laughs) there. And so I, I all Neon Bordeaux has to do is is camp right by the rim. I don't care that how fast Teen Wolf is or whatever. He's just good. That just gets his shot blocked faster. Like there's no way. And so he, I don't think he scores on Neon Bordeaux. I think this is a landslide for Neon. You, you've got 11-0 the other direction? Yeah, I do. There's, there's no middle ground, Maxime. No middle ground. <laughs> Who do you have? Teen Wolf versus Neon. Uh, Neon has a game-winning dunk to help oh. Western University upset Indiana. And Don't you mean on Big top State? of that, uh, no, I, I do not. I do not. Fuck yourself. Yeah, thanks for checking on that, though. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I actually, I'm pretty sure that Neon Boudreaux does not miss a shot the entire movie, which means that he's a hundred percent as a shooter. Um, and you can't beat that. So he moves on. Neon versus Lola Bunny in the finals. This is my nightmare. I thought for sure it was going to be Teen Wolf and I was going to be celebrating throughout the weekend, but I guess that's not going down. Wes, start us off. Lola versus Neon. This is exactly how I planned it out, other than uh, Teen Wolf beating Fresh Prince. I thought for sure Fresh Prince would move on. But this was the finals I envisioned when you invited me onto this podcast. I feel used. I feel used. I feel like you've completely manipulated this. I don't know how you've done it, but congratulations, man. And Lola wins. And the reason I, and the reason Lola wins, and I just want to direct everybody again, Neon Bordreau, the tallest player in this bracket. Lola's main claim to fame is the fact that she jumped over a monstar who was about three size the times of Neon Bordreau. Lola beats Neon Bordreau by jumping over him several different times and just dunking. Lola Bunny is the greatest fake player ever. I, I really feel like we should have just done the guess Wes's intention segment as opposed to this one. This has just turned so terribly for me. I cannot believe that Lola is going to be the odds on favorite. I'm going to save my take and hope that one of you disagree with Wes. Marcus, who do you have? This is a tough one. I think, I think the sheer size of neon just becomes problematic. But I do think at the end of the day, because Neon is Shaquille O'Neal, that Charles Barkley somehow calls Lola doll at some point, And then Lola just 
erupts for about eight straight points and and captures the crown. So I'm going to go this, Lola as well. This doll thing sounds a little bit like steroid use. I'm just going to throw it out there. I bet you that we're all kind of feeling it. And I I don't think that it's fair. I, I feel like it's it's just blatant cheating. We have zero, zero proof that Lola has a jump shot. I mean, in fact, what we've heard is all she can do is dunk, it sounds like. So again, it's going to be one of those scenarios who starts off with the ball because Lola is three foot two, man. She might be able to jump, but if Shaq, start, I mean, Neon starts off with the ball, he's definitely going to be able to post her ass up. It's dunks nonstop without a jump shot to start with the ball. I'm going Neon. I'm going Neon. Do we have a tie, Maxime, or are you making it 3-1 the other direction? Can we just talk about the stakes that each of these players have faced in their lives? Because Great point. Slavery. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Which, by the way, can you imagine? I mean, they're obviously coming out with another uh, another Space Jam. Something tells me that the bottom line plot line on that is not going to be LeBron James uh, maybe facing slavery at the hands of aliens should he not win a basketball game. You know, I, I just, that that plot line didn't age that well. But I see where you're coming from, Max. Yeah, that's it. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> so Lola Bunny is our best fake player ever. My God, what have we done here, gentlemen? The right We've thing. The eight seed coming through, we believe. <laughs> this is a spite winner from what I could tell. I think you guys are just are just absolutely spiting me. Neon well, Boudreaux definitely punched a hole in the wall somewhere. <laughs> Jackie Moon made millions off of this tournament, too. <laughs> Congratulations, MT, for making them through this without saying Jackie Moon like 15 times. I had the I had the over under on Jackie Moon references at seven. You took the way under. I should have had the over under on doll references at 119. We would have ended up with the over. Wes, phenomenally well done. That's true every time we have you on. For everybody out there who needs to take advantage of your great work, how do they do it? Find me on Twitter at WC Goldberg um, and uh, throw me a follow. Um, I'll shout out Lola Bunny as much as I can on there. <laughs> you know where to find us. If you want to reach out to us to let us know that Team Wolf certainly should have won, that Uncle Drew is not Kyrie, that I was wrong to include NBA members in this best fake player bracket, shoot that take to warriorshuddle at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on our Twitter account, which is at warriorshuddle. I will leave the self-promotion there, the Warriors, and hopefully we'll see you real soon. Good, good. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.